0: Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Talking Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. All right, I'm excited for this uh, this month. Yeah, I think uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it just got eerily dark. Yeah, as soon as we started recording, it is 4:04 p.m. <laughs> on May 1st, and
1: 2014,
0: he...
1: and uh, and the sunny day has just darkened. Yeah. This is like
0: the earliest I think we've ever recorded. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, there were, like two weeks ago, I think, we had a day where we re- we recorded while the... Or no, we started watching a movie while the sun was still out. So we didn't record until it was dark. But yeah, so this... Yeah. Yeah. Because I have to be to work in 12 hours.
0: <laughs> yeah, you have to be to work at 4.30 in the yeah,
1: morning. Yeah, uh, 4.30. Until 8...
0: <laughs> well at least you know you can just go right home and just go back to sleep
1: I guess I don't I haven't decided how to do that yet I've never had a job like that where I don't know you
0: have to get up that early and yeah I mean I've had to usually when I have to get up like that early for whatever reason like I'll I'm I it's so hard for me to sleep at night like I'm just yeah. sort of hardwired to like stay up all night me too So generally, like, I'll just wind up getting, like, (laughs) two or three hours of sleep before and then just, like, crash afterwards.
1: When I worked at CR Bard, there were times when I would go in on the weekends to do overtime, and I'd have to go in at, like, 4 a.m. But I'd work, like, four hours, five hours, but just to go in for three and a half hours.
0: Yeah, and if you wanted to get eight hours of sleep... You'd have to go to bed at, like, what, like, 10 p.m.?
1: No, in, like, in like four hours... Well, no, in, like, three hours, because I'd have to, like... When I wake up, I have to shower and then drive over the mountain and stuff, so...
0: So that's, like, about an hour right there. Or...
1: So I'm probably just gonna have to stay up all night. I tried to wake up really early today, but... I Because wo- I woke up and I was like, I'm gonna go for a walk and do all this, like, exercise stuff to get myself tired. Right. But I woke up at 10 a.m., which to me is early. Yeah. And I looked outside, and it was all, like, dreary and raining. And I was like, I guess I'm not walking. And then I made the mistake of going back to bed. (laughs) (laughs) So I woke up at noon, and then it just, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well. Maybe I'll get used to it at some point. Well, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> this is Tim's
0: job check-in yeah. on talking movies. Have you been watching a lot of movies?
1: Um, this past week. This past week, um, not a lot. I watched um, The Citadel, which was nominated for Best Picture in 1938. It was directed by King Vidor. You just can't get off that. It well when TCM was having its thirty-one days of Oscar this year, I filled up my DVR, and now there's more things I want to record. I'm like, oh, so man, off. I I'm not going to be able to watch the new episode of Inside Amy Schumer this week. I should record it. I don't have thirty minutes space on my DVR. I better watch this two-hour movie. And then yeah, it, it was it was pretty good. It's it was a little preachy. It's about like the nobility of the medical profession. I mean, ah. It's a King Vidor film. He could be a bit much sometimes, although I, I like I well I've only. well when seen, you have a name
0: like King, I mean, yeah, <laughs> you can't help but be a bit much.
1: And it was it had an early appearance by um, Rex Harrison, whose first name also means King. Mm. Yeah, it was like I think the earliest the other the the only other film I've seen of his from like before the fifties was uh, the Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Oh wait, no, Anna and the King of Siam, where he played the King of Siam in um, what we would now call Yellow Face, even mm. though the film was black and white, but still. Ten years after that, Yul Brenner played it in the musical version, the, the King and I. I don't know who played it in the 90s version with Jodie Foster that was just called Anna and the King. Probably not a white actor. Probably not. <laughs> there, the there's... dual role,
0: Jodie Foster played both
1: <laughs> Anna and the King. There have been certain limits placed on, like, how wide an actor's range can be. Mm. Like, I don't know. You used to be able to play like, wow, like that, or people would say, oh, that's an impressive actor. He can play all these various roles very believably. But if they stray too far from home, certain people will get offended. Right. Like, well, no, we can't have people pretending they're something they're not. Yeah. Even though that's acting. (laughs) Yeah, it is kind of a, And, like, I can definitely understand both sides of the argument. Yeah. Because it can be offensive. As Just before we started recording, we uh, made a little reference to Mickey Mickey Rooney Rooney, and Bucky Stephanies, which we've mentioned earlier. I
0: mean, that's, like, he's not so much playing a character as he is playing a racial stereotype.
1: Right. And there is a difference. Like, when people say blackface, Mm -hmm. there is a tradition of blackface from, like, the 19th century. uh, These, like minstrel shows these troops that would travel around and there was a certain style of performing in blackface which is different than an actor being like i'm going to play a black person and like because blackface is there's no realism to it everything's very exaggerated Mm -hmm. and you're focusing on like stereotypes and like there i mean sometimes in recent years, you can get away with it. I don't remember anybody complaining when Adam Sandler kind of tanned his face a little bit and was playing Bill Cosby on SNL.
0: Or um, Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder.
1: But wasn't he playing a white person? He was person? playing a white
0: person right. acting in blackface.
1: And like, I feel like... The, I haven't seen Tropic Thunder, but I got the impression it was sort of commenting on it.
0: Yeah, it was It was, it was about like sort of poking fun at method yeah. acting and
1: and i like the uh, i've found it amusing how um hollywood kind of like covered its ass by making sure that when they did the uh they announced the nominations for best sporting actor like at the oscar ceremony mm-hmm. that year they had uh cuban junior <laughs> uh talk about robert Downey cuz that was the oh, year yeah. where they had like there were five different people on the stage, and each one of them was talking about a different nominee. Right. It was really awkward. Um, and they made sure that they had a black actor talk about Robert Downey Jr. To be like, oh, it's okay. If one black person is not offended by <laughs> yeah. it, then none of you should be offended yeah, by exactly. it. Yeah,
0: exactly. That is a weird sort of mental trick that sort of goes on.
1: It's like LL Cool J with his uh, that country song, uh, Accidental Racist, that he did last year. LL Cool or, J did a country song? Well, he did it with, I think it was... I want to say Kenny Chesney. Like, he was the one who, like, sang it. LL Cool J sort of, like, had a cameo. And it's basically this country singer singing a song about how, like, I'm sorry I do certain things. It's not because I'm a racist. It's because I'm proud of my Southern heritage. I'm sorry I'm wearing this shirt that has a (laughs) Confederate flag on it. It's not because I'm racist. It's just because I'm a Leonard Skynyrd fan. Hmm. Because people don't like to think about what things represent. (laughs) Right. They're just... uh, And then... So, to make sure that he didn't really sound racist, you know, they got LL Cool J to appear in it, in which he actually sings a line, I don't remember the exact line, but it's something on the, on the, along the lines of, like, if you ignore my gold chains, I'll forget about the iron chains. So, it's like, if you let me wear things that are, like, stereotypical, like, rapper things, then I'll forget about slavery. We're cool. Like, it was just a weird, awkward song. That
0: sounds so bizarre. Yeah. Wow I mean, I don't often sort of go back to country songs released At any time, really But I'm curious (laughs) to, like, watch the music video for that Because that just sounds so weird
1: So, yeah, I watched The Citadel And it was pretty good I feel like I watched another movie And I can't remember it at all What about you?
0: I actually watched a pretty good amount of movies this week I saw Divergent How was it? You know it's pretty much what you'd expect it to be, oh, uh-huh. I mean I it's very much without any sort of real shame, just kind of like you know, yeah, you know we're inspired by the Hunger games and like there's a sort of pinch of Harry Potter in the story in the way that like um in like Harry Potter, there's this whole thing where you go to the school and like you have like there's like the hat where you they they choose like which house you're gonna belong to or whatever. Like, you know, Gryffindor or the the snake one. Sl- sl- Slytherin Slytherin, yeah. There you
1: go. I haven't even read or seen any of that. <laughs> cultural osmosis.
0: Yeah. And in 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 Divergent it's kinda like you reach a certain age and then you sort of choose one of five societal roles. So you can either be like uh like a scientist or like a lawyer politician kind of thing or a, uh, I forget what the other ones are or like one of the like police enforcement sort of army
1: people. So uh, they're divided like the apes and planet of the apes. Yeah. They, like, yeah. They, time, they, they are you're kind of be a smart guy. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> and a
0: divergent is like, you know, one who can't classify me, man can't box me into one role. I'm divergent. Sometimes, like, that sort of message of, like, embrace your individuality and stuff is hammered home pretty fiercely. And Kate Winslet is in it, who normally, like, she's a really great actress. Yeah. But she's was given such a
1: one-dimensional, just really poorly written role. Based on the trailer, it seemed like the movie was full of such roles.
0: Yeah. Um, honestly, like... it. It wasn't like a. It's not a bad movie. I wouldn't say it's. It was entertaining, and that had mostly to do with uh, the main
1: actress, uh, Shailene Woodley. I think is how you pronounce her name. Who reminds me of Hannah? I don't really know Hannah, like her personality or anything, but just like
0: oh her yeah, face. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And you, you were talking about how like you couldn't really imagine her being in this sort of like dystopian future type setting because you think of the actress as more of like oh she's like a girl next door type
1: which is how like in the trailer like just her line readings are very like high school play i don't know
0: she she i was in i was i actually really liked her performance in it and it's the kind of role that like is sort of meant to be for someone like her where it's like she's sort of thrown into this world of like you know, I have to be like a badass kinda of like action person, but she's like not that kind of person at all. So yeah, I mean like there there are some things I I enjoyed about it. There's some good uh some well done scenes and sequences, but yeah, I mean overall it just kinda of like it's a lot on the nose.
1: I it keeps maybe it's just the titles, but I keep confusing that and um transcendence. Yeah. That makes sense. Which also doesn't look like something that I would enjoy. Transcendence,
0: like... I
1: I was offered... Nolan wanted to go see that last week, and he was going to buy my ticket and everything, and I was just like, I just don't want to.
0: (laughs) We're getting that at Amy's starting tomorrow, actually. So, it's the perfect kind of movie that, like, I wouldn't want to really pay to see it, but I'll watch it for free, so... Yeah. Like, the concept of it, I really, like... The idea of like the singularity the moment in in human evolution where we sort of cross the boundaries between you know man and computer and we sort of we transcend our you know our body and stuff but from what i hear it's just not a very good movie
1: yeah and there are a lot of movies where it's like oh i'd like to talk about that with people i'd like to have a conversation about like that theme and stuff but i don't want to Have to sit through the movie first.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So anyway, you see, I watched Divergent, and then I watched, kind of randomly, I watched Zodiac, David Fincher's You hadn't seen it before? No, I hadn't seen it before. I haven't seen it. And I just, I don't know, I just sort of saw it, and I was like, just in the mood for it in the moment. Didn't realize it was like nearly three hours long when I started it at like... Five in the morning or four in the morning or something. So it didn't get done until really late, but I really liked it. I thought it was great. And I'd always heard from people saying that, like, uh, you know, it's not as good. But I think that's maybe mostly due to the fact that it's like, oh, it's David Fincher doing a serial killer movie. And he did Seven, which is like a very kind of specific sort of style. And this isn't really like that at all.
1: I heard it's similar to like, it was kind of like 70s police procedural movies. Like yeah. It focuses on that aspect of it. Yeah. I remember hearing from people like, I don't remember who it was. At least two different people were like, yeah, I didn't really like Zodiac that much. You would love it, Tim. <laughs> and I didn't know how to take that. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's kind of weird.
1: But I still haven't
0: seen it. I, I really liked it. I, I thought it was great. And then I guess I was on a serial killer kick and I ended up watching Henry, a portrait of a serial killer.
1: That's one of those like iconic movies that I still haven't seen. Like it always comes up that's supposed to be like this like great masterpiece.
0: I mean, it's, uh, it's really cool because I mean, it was made in like 1986 and with like a super low budget, like just over a hundred thousand dollars or something like that. And it was shot on like 16 millimeter film. So it has this like real sort of dirty quality to it and uh Michael Rooker is just unbelievable just amazing yeah really really cool creepy movie
1: it's weird that I only know Michael Rooker from Mallrats and Slither
2: (laughs) yeah
0: I mean I for for years I I knew him as from Mallrats yeah now he's on The Walking Dead. Oh, okay. So.
1: I saw an episode of. Um, I don't remember which one it was because there are several. There are several shows like on Sci Fi now. Sci Fi? Sci Fi. Whatever they call it these days. <laughs> it used to be the Sci Fi channel. Where it's like a behind the scenes, like they're. Oh, wait, no, it was one of the Scream Queens ones. It might have been on VH1. Where they're like looking for a new Scream Queen and it's these uh, actresses competing against each other. And, um, James Gunn was involved, who did Slither, and he wrote, uh, the Dawn of the Dead remake, and Tromeo and Juliet, mm. and, so, like, his brother Sean Gunn, from Gilmore Girls, Kirk, I know yeah, you haven't seen I'm it, not sure. but, yeah, uh, <laughs> but, uh, he was on it, also, like, acting with the actresses in different scenes, and they had Michael Rooker on, as, like, a special guest that they had to, like, act with in a scene, uh, as, like, part of, like, the whole audition process. And this one girl had no idea who he was. And everyone on the show just seemed so offended that she had no idea who it was. And I was like, I'm supposed to be, like, this big horror fan guy. And I really don't necessarily know who he is. Or, like... Oh, my uh, God. You don't know who Michael Hooker <laughs> is? <laughs> like, I don't, like, I looked it up later. I'm like, oh, that's that guy from Mallrats. Right. And Slither. But, which makes sense, because James Gunn did right, Slither, yeah. so, But, um... Yeah, I didn't... I don't
0: know. No, I mean, like, this... uh, Henry was really, like... The first time I think I've seen him in anything pre-Mallrats. But, yeah, I mean, he he is really just fantastic. Yeah, I mean, if you're in the mood for a really raw, dirty, creepy serial killer movie, which is based on a true story, kind of. It's loosely based on a true story. Yeah, Henry Lee Lucas. Yeah, I would highly recommend it.
1: I love gritty, disturbing horror movies.
0: Yeah, so... And then I watched uh, The Conversation. Also kind of randomly. Hadn't seen it before. It's Francis Ford Coppola's film with Gene Hackman from 1974.
1: The same year that he did Godfather 2.
0: Yeah, I mean, man, oh man. Francis Ford Coppola in the 70s is like, just
1: unbelievable. He's so good. Yeah, he burned out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just it was just to look at his like list of films that he made during that If time, any other
1: director had only made one of those movies like yeah. that's enough to hold you over but
0: but he did two Godfather movies yeah. Apocalypse Now
1: which took up the whole second half of the 70s for him
0: yeah which i mean you know with good reason that's a yeah crazy movie and the conversation which it's a very small film compared to those other movies Hmm. but really intense and really interesting I mean it kind of goes places that you don't really I wasn't really expecting it to go and I didn't know too much about it other than it was like something to do with like wiretapping and you know that kind of thing but
1: were you I the first time I saw it I was pleasantly surprised to see like the young Harrison Ford show up yes, randomly? Yes,
0: that was... Because I, I didn't know he was in it. Yeah. And and I saw in the opening credits Harrison Ford, and I'm like, oh, cool, that's great. And I knew that Harrison Ford was in Apocalypse Now, yeah. in a very, very small role in yeah. that.
1: Because he shot it... Bef- I mean, the movie came out after Star Wars, but they had shot his one scene... I think he's in one scene before Star Wars. Apocalypse uh, Now. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is a pre-Star Wars, very young-looking Harrison Ford in the conversation, And he plays this, like, really kind of, like, creepy, menacing type of person. But he's, like, a pretty boy. He's, like, sort of, like, dressed in these, like, sort of fancy-looking clothes. And he's sort of, like, preppy kind of guy up in this, like, huge building. He's, like, the assistant to this powerful CEO. And uh, it was just great seeing him in that kind of a of a role which i can't remember i can't think of any other movie where like harrison ford doesn't play a protagonist or like a hero of some kind hmm. not then this was like more on like he was a he was somewhat of a villain and uh i loved seeing him like that it really helped kind of deepen my appreciation for his acting ability
1: it's like there's that whole like almost like a stock company like in like that time period that like coppola and lucas were kind of like trading back and forth because like the year before coppola had produced american graffiti which Mm -hmm. george lucas directed which also has harrison ford in a small role and it has um cindy williams i don't remember if she was laverne or shirley but the the girl in the conversation (laughs) And then, oh okay, yeah. yeah. And then Frederick Forrest is in the conversation. He shows up later in um, Apocalypse Now as the uh, the chef. Yeah, I don't know. I just like the idea that there's this like, well, like we talked about way back in like November, just like this group of filmmakers hanging out and just kind of treating yeah, people yeah. around and stuff. It really <laughs> feels like a. And John Cazell is there. And John Cazale,
0: yeah. who again is just you know amazing. And uh, and Gene Hackman. This is probably my favorite movie I've ever seen him... My favorite role of his that I've ever seen.
1: I always forget how great he is until I'm watching one of his movies. I don't really think about, like, oh, Gene Hackman, he's awesome. Like, yeah. that. But then when you're watching him, it's just like, why isn't he in everything?
0: Yeah. No, I mean, he in the conversation, he's just fantastic.
1: He's always such a... Like, he can be that sort of, like everyman character, but then he'll have things like the conversation where he's just so insular. Yeah. And, like, you can't, like, break through that wall. hmm I don't know. Just... And that, that's just one of the so, weird like, things.
0: And, which, uh, I'm used to seeing him more boisterous and kind of like, you know, I'm Lex Luthor and I'm gonna buy up the real estate in California <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. You or know. in the
1: birdcage or the Royal Tenenbaums.
0: Yeah, or the Royal Tenenbaums <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. And this, he's just
1: so, like, closed up the whole movie is yeah it's such a, like an interior film and like i don't know how successful it was like financially or anything and like i mean critically it i mean it was nominated for best picture and a lot mm-hmm. of people were fans of it but like i can't imagine like that movie being released in like a wide release today
0: yeah that's what i was thinking of while i was watching it like i read a uh a brief thing about uh when roger eber added it to a list of like he had some lists, like, his greatest movies or something.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, and there's, like, you, like, there's, if you go to, like, the website, there's, like, all the reviews that he wrote, like, when the movies came out, mm-hmm. and then some of the movies you'll see have two reviews, and that's because, like, in, I think, the late 90s, maybe. Yeah, it was, like, that, 99 or something. Yeah, he started writing, he started this new column, Great Movies, and he released at least three books, like, collecting these reviews, mm. which, since they're all on the website, is kind of... I don't know, yeah, Um, but yeah, where he basically is like reassessing them, Mm
0: -hmm. um, and I read a a blip from from that when he added the conversation to his list of great movies, in which he said like this kind of like thriller, espionage thriller, I guess. Those kinds of movies are made today, Hmm. but they're just made. So differently today <laughs> Like I can imagine You can imagine like the conver- like Just the, the plot of the, of the conversation Or even just like the same script Being made by like a studio today Or like a filmmaker today It would be All of that subtlety I feel like Would just be kind of Gone And instead of focusing on It would be focusing more on like the uh, More of the visceral elements Rather than just kind of like because the conversation is really more of, like, this character study of this of this guy. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like... to And, and when I was watching it, like, there's this whole thing with, like, the NSA that's going on today. Hmm. Where it's like, you know, they're hacking emails and looking at all of our, you know, telephone records and doing all this sort of stuff. And the conversation, when it came out, it came out right around the time of the whole Nixon-Watergate scandal, yeah. which was apparently some of the technology that's seen in the conversation was actually used in the whole Watergate wiretapping thing. But according to Francis Ford Coppola, it wasn't a response to that at all, because that that big story like hadn't even really broke until after they were done filming. It just was sort of like serendipitously timed. I was thinking, like now, because that—that's just sort of like in the in like the, the social conscious. The movie—I can imagine a movie like this coming out today, but it just wouldn't be like the conversation.
1: And what's odd is that, like, if the movie was made today, it would try and be very obvious. It wouldn't want to lose any audience member. It would want everybody to understand exactly what's going on every time. Mm-hmm. And like Coppola, when talking about the conversation. There's like a moment in it, and this will sort of like this is sort of a spoiler, I guess, because it has to do with like the revelation at the end of uh, Gene Hackman's character understanding what's going Are on. Are you talking
0: about the uh, the toilet?
1: No, I was actually talking about the. Um, there's that piece of audio that he listens to over and over. Oh right,
0: yep, yep, yep. And uh, then and then like kill the very us last if, time he'd kill us
1: if he had the chance. Yeah. And then at they the last do time, change it. Yeah. The yeah. last time
0: we hear it, the inflection is just slightly different.
1: Yeah. And Coppola was like, sometimes I wonder if I should have done that because it is cheating. It's like I'm trying too hard to make sure the audience gets it. Mm-hmm. And I guess Walter Murch, who did all the sound editing for the film, right. um, like he didn't want to do that. But it's done and it doesn't make the movie a bad movie. And-
0: it like To me, it kind of made it feel a little more and almost it turns into this sort of dreamlike kind of experience by the end. Where, like, like where
1: he's walking and he sees her, and
0: yeah, when like, he, when he yeah. like when he goes to like the hotel and yeah. is like, or oh yeah, and then at the very end when like there's like the the press conference happening or whatever, not the conference, but like the she's coming down the stairs and like all the press is like swarming around her. And stuff. Well, I was
1: thinking there's like a there's there is like actually like a dream sequence where he's like talking to her.
0: Oh yeah yeah, yeah. there yeah that, there's that yeah. dream sequence, but just like when we sort of are flashing back to, like, the events that have unfolded and we sort of see the truth about what was going yeah. on. Through all that, like, I, I was starting to wonder, like, question, I was starting to question just, like, you know, how much of this is real or how much of it is, like, happening in his mind or or what. But, yeah, I mean, it, it was a great movie. Um, and it made me want to watch more Francis Ford Coppola stuff from the 70s. I mean, what else is there besides the Godfather films, Apocalypse Now, The Conversation? Was Rumblefish
1: in 80s. That? Rumblefish was the 80s. At Rumblefish was 80s? Because he did two S.E. Hinton movies. He did The Outsiders and Rumblefish.
0: Um, so what else did he do in the 70s? Well, I guess, like, in the 60s, when did Dementia 13 come out?
1: That was 63. And then... Um... In '66, he did "You're a Big Boy Now," which was his thesis film as a film student, and he was the first film student who ever did a feature-length film where he hired professional actors. That was Karen Black's first movie, mm. and it won uh, some awards and stuff. And uh, then that led him um, to Warner Brothers, but well, at the time, Warner Brothers Seven Arts um, in '68, and he did Finian's Rainbow. And he met George Lucas on the set of that because George Lucas had also, like, won some awards as a student filmmaker. And they were like, oh, your prize is you get to, like, observe people filming on a big studio. And that's when all the studios were dying. And he's just Mm. walking around looking at all the depressing things going on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But he met Coppola out of it. And then he assisted him on Coppola's first sort of, like, independent production, uh, The Rain People, which I, I have yet to see. It's like a road movie. And it was... I think I mentioned this in our Easy Rider episode. Yeah. Where, yep. Yeah. They yeah, were like did. traveling westward across the country in the mm-hmm. north while the Easy Rider crew was traveling eastward. Uh, and then after the Rain People, it, it was not a successful film. So he took some writing gigs. He ended up winning an Oscar for writing the screenplay for Patton.
0: Yeah. I always forget about uh, that. That's, and that's sort crazy. Sort
1: of parlayed that into. The, I mean, he was like the 20th director chosen for the... Like, so many people turned down The Godfather before they were finally like, let's just get this guy. He's Italian. <laughs> mm. And then The Godfather's huge success, and he could pretty much do anything. So he did The Conversation, Godfather 2. He wrote the screenplay for The Great Gatsby, the 70s version, which mm. was also not a success. And he produced some things like american graffiti and the black stallion and he did apocalypse now and then after apocalypse now he entered his sort of like robert altman and a lot of directors who had been big in late the late 60s early 70s they like the 80s was like a dark period it was the blockbuster era The studios were having more control over like just you know like the high concept films and
0: and the sort of franchise film was sort of reborn yeah because i mean franchise films had existed in the past like you know there are the andy hardy yeah and you look at like all the the universal monster movies and like um the charlie chan and mr moto yeah that kind of stuff
1: speaking of yellow face
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i mean they came back in a in a big way in the 80s where you suddenly had like you know your friday the 13th and your nightmare on elm streets
1: star wars
0: Star Wars, which yeah. it's
1: amazing because Coppola basically gave Lucas his break, and then,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then <laughs> Lucas <laughs> broke <laughs> Coppola. Uh, not really, but uh, and even stuff like you know, like Jaws suddenly spawned like three sequels, and everything was it turned into that world.
1: Yeah, he started out the eight, well, Apocalypse Now was such a debacle for him, mm-hmm. and then like you know he'd gone on location in the Philippines. Roger Corman warned him against it. He's like, I've shot in the Philippines, never shoot in the Philippines. And Coppola was like, I'm doing it. And then they were there for like four years or something. (laughs) Like, I don't remember when they started, but I mean, it was like the movie came out in the end of 79 or beginning of 80 or something. And like after Star Wars came out, like Coppola, like cabled Lucas or wherever they contacted people from the Philippines at that time and was like, send us money. (laughs) <laughs> so after the horrible experience of like shooting on location, he was like, I'm gonna make like a studio film, like in the studio, all interior, and he made this musical, one from the heart. Uh he had Tom Waits do all the music for it. Right,
0: yeah. I've I've and heard the soundtrack. Um
1: I haven't heard anything from it, I've never seen it. I'm very curious about it. It yeah. has a big cult following now, but it was a big failure at the time. And like Coppola was he was he had built this sort of, like, contraption that he was inside of where he, like, wouldn't even see the actors in person. Or the actors at least wouldn't see him. And he'd be, like, giving people, like, directions through, like, a megaphone or, like, through, like, a loudspeaker (laughs) thing and, like...
0: Because he just wanted to be, like... (laughs) Just, like, leave me alone.
1: Yeah. Uh, And so that, that was not that successful. The Outsiders... I think it was fairly successful, but not... He didn't get to do what he wanted to do on it. It was more like, well, you know, I'll just I'll do this project for the studio or whatever and the Rumblefish was a follow up to that and then the Cotton Club was supposed to be his comeback. He was re-teaming with Robert Evans, who had done The Godfather with him and and then that was like a problem production and they ended up recutting it and stuff mm. and that bombed. And Lucas Sort of like tried to pay him back, but like you know, Coppola had produced a Lucas film early on, so Lucas produced uh, Tucker, The Man in His Dream, right? Which I don't know if it bombed, but it wasn't like a big yeah. movie or anything. And then eventually it led back to Godfather 3,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which was successful. I think it's a good movie
0: that, yeah, I think it gets a bad rap.
1: Yeah, it's like if and even if Winona Ryder had been in it, which was the original plan. I still can't picture her in that part But Sofia Coppola is not a good actress Yeah She's not horrible in every single scene
0: Right But
1: If they could change that one line In the second to last scene of the movie The last line that Sofia Coppola speaks in the film It causes laughter when it should cause tears
0: What is the line?
1: Daddy Yeah Yeah
0: I don't remember it, but... Spoilers.
1: Okay. She gets shot, and then she falls down on her knees, looks at Pacino and says, Daddy? And then dies. And you're just like, what? Like, I don't know. It just... Uh, it's so ridiculous. But it's followed up by a great, like, Pacino's whole, like, silent scream thing that he does when he's like, oh my God, like, my daughter's dead because of me. and.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think, like, Pacino is really good in... in- godfather three so many memorable scenes like when he's confessing his sins to the uh to the bishop or the soon-to-be pope if i'm remembering that correctly And
1: his whole whole, like the relationship between michael and kay Mm -hmm. like the scenes with him and diane keaton like i like that there was still focus on that because there i'm sure at the time there was like oh let's make it all like big gangster action sequences and stuff And there are like those set pieces, like the whole, like the meeting with all the like mob heads and stuff where they're like, there's a helicopter and stuff, but like it works.
0: Yeah. What's funny is like when Coppola was making Godfather part two, he, when it came to like name the movie, he was like trying to name, have it be called Godfather part two. Right. But the studio was like, no, no, no. Audiences are going to get confused. They're going to look at the poster and say... Oh, The Godfather? I've already seen that. And he's like, you're not giving people enough credit <laughs> to understand that, like, there's a part two. Like, it's, you know, it's the it's the next one. It's the sequel. And so The Godfather Part Two is actually, like, one of the first movies to actually... One of the first sequels to have, like, a number in the title. Hmm. There could have been one before that, but...
1: Instead of, like, The Ghost of Corleone, or house of the godfather right yeah
0: <laughs> the godfather's hand um yeah because before that like i mean most sequels we took that route where it was like you know the thin man strikes again or this person there's no thin this? man strikes again i'm making a okay uh, what well what is one of the thin man sequels
1: after the thin man after. another thin man shadow of the thin man the thin man goes home and Song of the Thin Man.
0: <laughs> the Thin Man Strikes Again.
1: <laughs> uh, I think there's a... Uh, the Falcon Strikes Back. I've never seen any of the Falcon or the Saint movies, but I think there's a Strikes Back somewhere in there. I don't know. Anyway, I get your point.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, and then when it came time to make... So finally, he won that battle, and The Godfather Part 2 became a huge success. And then when it finally came time to do Part 3, his whole thing was like he didn't want to call it part three because he felt like it wasn't a real so much of a continue it wasn't like so much of a next chapter as it was like an epilogue an epilogue i was like you know hence
1: the spoilerful title he wanted
0: yeah the the title that he wanted was the death of michael corleone and i think like if you go into the movie like with that title in mind thinking of it as just that an epilogue like i think it's it makes much more sense yeah because the expectations aren't so like you know you liked godfather part two well here's part three like here we go like it it sort of it more so says that like you know this is it, it the movie is almost like a dream in that way where it's like like a what-if scenario almost like this is what would happen to these characters like years later yeah. as opposed to just like saying like this is what happens next
1: and you wouldn't be so upset by like things like the lack of robert duvall mm-hmm. who's like he's not in the film and they just kind of like, because they i forget what the reason was he was it was either a money thing or he was doing something else and they couldn't wait for him so they just kind of throw away like no, oh yeah he's dead, he's dead. <laughs> sorry about your dad john savage <laughs> like, yeah he died he's gone <laughs> It was, but this. I mean, the same thing happened with Clemenza in part two. They had to like, because mm-hmm. that actor didn't want to, or he wanted his friend to write all his dialogue for him. And what? Coppola was like, "No, <laughs>
0: that doesn't make any this sense. This is the
1: screenplay I wrote." And he's like, "Well, I want my friend. My friend's a writer. I want him to write all my dialogue. And he's like, "Well, then forget it." And then at, in one of the early <laughs> scenes, like, you know,
0: like Clemenza isn't all that important.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, he would have been in that though, because he was supposed to be like uh, uh, Frankie. Pitt, what's his face? I don't know Um, like that character they invented him because Clemenza wasn't in it Mm. so Clemenza was supposed to be the big like betrayer of of Godfather 2 and then when they introduce Frankie standing next to Joe (laughs) Spinell, early in Godfather 2 they have him with a black armband and somebody's like oh I'm sorry about Clemenza and he's like yeah it's sad about Clemenza (laughs) like
0: (laughs) that's yeah that's funny Man, you can... Yeah, I mean, like, if if those sort of things were, like, had actually happened, like, the Godfather trilogy would have just been, like, pretty damn tight.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's weird to think, like, oh, what could be done to make the Godfather films better?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think we're we're looking at a gift horse in the mouth here at times, but still, (laughs) you're right.
0: I mean, yeah, it just would have... I mean, or, like, getting Marlon Brando back for part two. Just
1: that, yeah.
0: You know, like cuz that like that is like you know one of those things where it's like in that one scene in particular where it just sort of feels like <laughs> we all know what's really going on here like they couldn't get Marlon Brando back
1: but, Although, for him to enter and then leave cuz the important thing in that scene is to have michael alone like it almost it kind of make it they I don't know how the scene was originally written, Mm -hmm. but, like, it makes sense for them to all leave the room to surprise Brando. Right. Well, Don Vito. (laughs) Um, And, like, have Michael alone, rather than, like, I don't know. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm sure they would have made it work.
2: Yeah.
0: But, anyway. Have you seen
1: any of Coppola's recent movies? Like, his... Sort of comeback movies post Jack and the Rainmaker.
0: No, you know I almost watched Twixt. Twixt, because um, I can't. It was either on Netflix or Hulu or something. So I might actually do that sometime soon.
1: I have Youth Without Youth. Oh yeah. Um, I still haven't that, seen that's
0: got that's uh, Tim Roth right.
1: Yeah, I got it in the mail the day that my aunt Ruth died that's not why i haven't watched it that's just i just remember like opening my mail that day which that's that's spring of 2010 so i've had that dvd for four years and i haven't watched it and i'm it's sad to admit that i have dvds that i i got before that that i still haven't watched yeah
0: <laughs> well, i mean like zodiac was one that like i've had on dvd for a long time mm-hmm. and i've just watched it this week feels good to like Watch one of those that you've had sitting around for a while.
1: One film that I watched this past week that I forgot about when you asked me earlier uh, was one that I bought at Last Vestige, well, at Divinal Revolution, the Mm. last time I went there before they went out of business, um, back in December, Blame It on Rio, which is the... Have you ever seen that? No. Um, I'd seen bits and pieces of it on Comedy Central. It used to be one of those Comedy Central movies from the 80s. They would show all the time but I never actually watched like a whole scene or really knew entirely what it was about. But like over the years I kept hearing about it as like the last film that Stanley Donen directed. Mm. Although he's supposed to be, he, it was just announced fairly recently. He's directing a new film.
0: He's still alive.
1: Yeah. Wow. Um, and it's going to have, uh, Christopher Walken and Charles Grodin in it, which
0: I'm guessing it's not like a musical <laughs> or
1: it is. I mean, it, Christopher Walken, uh, is a trained dancer and is he singer. really? Yeah. You didn't see that Fat Boy Slim video?
0: Oh, right, yeah. But also,
1: he was in Pennies from Heaven in the early 80s, and he does this whole tap sequence, which both Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire were like, that's amazing. We hate the movie, but your scene is the best thing we've seen in years.
0: Well, the only thing they've seen in years, as far as tap dancing goes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. Tap dancing is one of those things that, like, was so much a part of, like, so many movies. And that's... Back in like the '40s and
1: getting back 50s, to that, but... like um, when when I was talking about blackface earlier, Fred Astaire. I mean, well, tap dancing comes from African American culture, really. Yeah, hmm. like most things in American pop culture. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and um, Fred Astaire was like hugely influenced by uh, Bill Robinson, aka Mr. Bojangles, who's the same guy who uh, did the tap dance with Shirley Temple in uh, The Littlest Colonel. And in one of his early films at RKO, he did a scene in honor of Bill Robinson, and he did it in blackface as a sign of, like, here's a tribute to Bill Robinson, who's black, therefore, you know, black Mm. my face up for him. And it's one of those things where it's like, (laughs) I don't know how people feel about that, because, like, he did it out of respect, but at the same time, it's disrespect
0: yeah that's one of those things that's like that's just a whole different time like it might have seemed normal but I mean people a back good idea people
1: back, then, back but... then I mean people protested birth of a nation for all the people in blackface and that and I mean even if people weren't in blackface birth of a nation was worth protesting by the NAACP and stuff right. it. I don't know, it's tricky but anyway blame it on Rio is a weird movie it's got Michael Caine and uh, Joseph Bologna as these two- Joey Bologna Joey Bologna has these two middle-aged guys who are going on vacation to Rio and they're both bringing their teenage daughters, what could which daughters just seems like around? a weird, uh, so Michael Caine's daughter is played by Demi Moore in like her fourth movie or something. I think she was 19 Wow. and, uh, Joseph Bologna's daughter is played by Michelle Johnson in her first film and she was not an actress. She had been a model. Um, and she was seventeen. I learned this after I watched the movie. In the movie, I'm thinking like, oh, they always get these like girls in their twenties to play teenage girls and stuff, and you know, so they can be all naked. And she's naked so much in it. And she ends up having an affair with Michael Caine's character, and then afterwards, I'm reading all the trivia on IMDb and like Wikipedia and stuff like that, and it's like she was seventeen. and They needed special permission for all of her nude and sex scenes. <laughs> Man, and it was like she I don't know like it was just such a, it made it it was already an uncomfortable film yeah and then that just made it so sleazy <laughs> and what's weird is the way that the color is used and certain like camera movements and stuff it almost seemed like clearly this is the guy who directed singing in the rain mm. doing a sleazy sex comedy in the eighties that is with wow, like
0: that is so cheesy
1: weird. 80s music and stuff and like there's no musical sequence but I mean like there there is a random clip where they're on an airplane flying to Rio, and Michael Caine looks out the window, and he sees um, a clip from uh, flying down to Rio, which was the first Fred and Ginger movie of 1933, with all these like women dancing on the wing of a plane and stuff. And it, it was odd to like put that in there to juxtapose it with the whole movie around it. Mm. It's it's just a it's a very disturbing film, <laughs> and it didn't really mean to be. And it's it's sad that that's that came out 30 years ago and he that's what he ended on so far hopefully he gets to make this last film what i assume would be his last film he's like 90 or something i don't that's know crazy. you never know uh,
0: yeah i mean i'm shocked that he's even still alive yeah
1: he always shows up in like um like on special features on dvds and stuff like talking about old movies and like tcm specials and i always just assume like oh this must be footage from like maybe the early 90s of him. right and like <laughs> yeah he's he's still out there he's i think the only hollywood director of note from like the 40s and 50s who's still alive or at least of like the hollywood like mm-hmm. big studio films i mean and you think about it, like his legacy he's got like on the town and singing in the rain uh, seven Brides with Seven Brothers, Royal Wedding. And then in the 60s, he did his sort of like Hitchcockian thrillers, like Charade, Charade. and Arabesque yeah. and stuff. And, and then Blame It on Rio. I don't know. It's kind of... But I mean, like we mentioned with Coppola, like the 80s was sort of like this dark period for older yeah. filmmakers.
2: Yeah, you
0: know, Blame It on Rio. <laughs> Before we get into the the movie of the the show i just wanted to touch upon um some news that came out uh yesterday or the day before
1: is Um, this also harrison ford related
0: this is also harrison ford related um and we've talked a little bit about harrison (laughs) ford (laughs) and a little bit about george lucas and a little bit about a little bit about star wars (laughs) but um yeah they've announced the uh the, the cast the main cast for the new star wars film Episode 7. So, have you read the... Have you seen the cast?
1: Yeah. I don't remember every single name on there, because some of them were completely new to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't remember all of the names specifically. But, you know, the returning cast, not much of a surprise there. For months, we've known that, or we've assumed that Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford will all be back. But it's nice to finally have confirmation, like, you know, they're... They're going to be
1: back. And apparently Harrison Ford's role at least will be like a substantial role. Yeah. It won't be like a sort
0: of cameo thing.
1: He won't be Uncle Owen. Like, just kind of shows up.
0: But them saying that makes me like wonder about like Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill. (laughs) Yeah.
1: What has Mark Hamill been... Has he been acting steadily in recent years? He's
0: been doing a lot of voice work.
1: Okay. And Carrie Fisher is on Family Guy like almost every episode, I think.
0: Yeah. they've, They've both kind of gone that route, I guess. Last thing I know that... Carrie Fisher was in, well, she was in um, Scream 3, and then she was in Jane and Silent Bob Strike Back.
1: And both of those are like 2000, 2001 or something? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. 2000, 2001. then so, that's the last thing that I know of, of her. But, you know, I mean, obviously Harrison Ford's been steadily working. So we have those. Um, and then we also got uh, confirmation that Peter Mayhew will be back as Chewbacca uh anthony daniels will be back as c3po and kenny baker will be back as r2g2 <laughs> oh thank god i was <laughs> which you know whatever that means
1: um, but then also max von Sydow.
0: well yeah i was gonna get to that oh, i'm but sorry the big surprise those weren't so much surprises okay. but the big surprise for me was max von Sydow, which that made me happy i was like all right, I can totally dig that.
1: He's going to make up for Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it remind, it's very much like, to me, it feels akin to casting like Peter Cushing in the original Star Wars. It's like you have this sort of like older actor who almost has somewhat of like a cult following around him. Um,
1: almost. I mean, he's had like several books written about him and just like, mm-hmm. he'd be like the star of conventions in the 90s people would go to.
0: Really? Yeah. I didn't know that, but yeah. So, I mean, I think that's just like the perfect kind of, he's one of those like legacy actors that they've brought into stars, like Christopher Lee in the new, ch- in the new okay. trilogy.
1: I was wondering, like, I was like, oh, what other hammer actors are they going to get or something? Yeah. But, uh, because you had David There Prowse. aren't really any other like big, <laughs> like, when you think of hammer, you think of like Peter Cush and Christopher Lee. I don't know if anybody else is still alive. That yeah. was like.
0: Well, I mean, David Rose. Prowse is still alive. He, you know, he did some hammer work, but...
1: But I don't think that character will be...
0: (laughs) (laughs) And he was, obviously, he played Darth Vader, but... You know, I mean, he'd only really be a cameo, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, like, Max Fonsito...
1: In the end of Part 9, him and some other ghosts will just be standing near a fire.
2: Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, like, Max Fonsito, that's... He's iconic. Like, I mean, just... Not even because of just like great films like Seven Seal, so, but I mean just like the image of him standing outside of the house on the poster for The Exorcist. Yeah, It's just like everyone knows that mm-hmm. image.
0: Then he is. It's funny when I when I was talking with uh, with a friend of mine about the casting. I was like Max von and they didn't immediately know who he was. And I was like, The Exorcist. He's he's like he is like the Exorcist in the Exorcist. He's like the older and he was like oh he's still alive like he's he must be like really old because he's he's old And the exorcist but what's funny about that is like that was makeup yeah really really good Dick makeup Smith. um because i mean he, he really does look all like and when he got older like he looked almost
1: yeah and what's weird is same. because he's i mean he's swedish and he's got that whole like nordic like blonde hair pale skin like he looked old in Seven Seal, and that's
0: 1957. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So I yeah I, I couldn't be more thrilled about that. And the other surprise was Andy Serkis, which you know as Hollywood's resident mocap actor.
1: Is that what he will be doing? And the... they, they, haven't, I mean, said, we'll they assume... haven't said
0: anything about roles. Um, I know that he's
1: Godzilla actors, in the new Godzilla movie.
0: He is. Yeah. Okay. I, that's what I thought and then I looked on IMDb and I didn't see that
1: maybe it's supposed to be a surprise I read about it in the article unless it, unless it was wasn't
0: the, one of his acting credits unless it was maybe one of his like I don't know maybe he's credited differently hmm. so yeah but that I mean that's cool because he played King Kong and now he's playing Godzilla <laughs> like
1: they're gonna do King Kong versus Godzilla at some point and it's gonna be <laughs> Eddie Eddie Circus started- in a room
2: wow that would
0: be amazing <laughs> But yeah, I mean Andy Serkis. I think he is a great actor, and I, you know, I'm assuming he's gonna be like a mocap character. But I would, you know, I think it'd be cool if you put like just put him in some makeup, and like you know,
1: let let the public see the man. <laughs> like...
0: <laughs> which he's had, you know, other acting roles. Like... Yeah, he
1: was in Burke and Hare, which I think that's the only thing I've seen him in besides the first Hobbit movie.
0: And then there was a uh, a number of young actors who are almost like unknowns or relatively unknown
1: like Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher in the 70s yeah
0: so I mean that I'm really really thankful for that they're not like just hiring big you know whoever's hot right now because that just it feels sort of against what Star Wars has always kind of been even with the with the prequel trilogies like Hayden Christensen, Hayden Christensen, even Natalie Portman to an extent. Like she, you know, she was known like for the. Well, she had her
1: established fan base at that time, but.
0: But she wasn't like the, the mega star that,
1: she is now. She was just this really hot girl that everybody had to crush on. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um. <laughs> so, you know, and I don't remember any of their names. I know one of the actors was in the Harry Potter films. As one of the Weasleys, one of the Weasley brothers,
1: I didn't know there were brothers. I just knew about Ron.
0: I think there are like a lot of Weasley brothers,
1: do they all look like that?
0: They all have like red hair, and you know do they all look like that? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever's wrong with that kid,
2: they <laughs> all have the same <laughs> deformities,
0: <laughs> yeah, so I mean you know you look at the at the at the younger actors and. I just can't help but wonder who they're playing. But the big news that like everyone's talking about after the initial shock of like, wow, like new Star Wars actors, the thing that now everyone's talking about, even today I've been reading just like, it seems like everyone's chiming in with this question of why aren't there more female roles? Because aside from Carrie Fisher, there's only one girl in the cast.
1: Well, in the original one, isn't it only, there's Carrie Fisher, and then there's the woman who, like, is talking about, like, the plan to attack or something.
0: (laughs) Mon Mothma. And that's in the entire trilogy.
1: Okay, yeah. Because I just, I, it's been a long time since I've watched the actual films, but because I don't sleep that often, I'm constantly watching TV reruns. I've seen the Family Guy versions of them, like, so often, and... So like I know I know when I think of Star Wars I'm like picturing those versions. Oh no! And they like call attention to things like that, and so it's like Han Solo is like, "Wow, the only other woman in the entire galaxy," and Leia just goes, "I hate her," like because that's what happens. And right. <laughs> in the uh, I only saw Revenge of the Sith, and it's been a long time. Did in the prequels was there a, a fair amount? More female presence.
0: um There's Natalie Portman, and well, Anakin's mother in Episode One, and she's in Episode Two as well.
1: And there's like a a nanny or something taking care of people. No, I I
0: um, there's not a nanny.
1: <laughs> or uh, like some I think sort you're of...
0: thinking of Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, that's right. And that wasn't a woman.
1: <laughs> oh. <Ow. laughs> <laughs> yet another fine role going to a Maryland <laughs> yeah um i thought i was re- read about somebody who had like appeared in a small role in one of those well kira knightley was, like,
0: was in a small role in episode one because like
1: and she was taking care of like what are they called younglings or something
0: oh uh, no they're no
1: so that role is just that I'm imagining. I misread the thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. um,
0: but, I mean, that's like <clears throat> kind of the whole thing is that people are... That's why there is so much outcry for this. Because traditionally in Star Wars, like, it really boils down to just two right. characters. Leia and, and Amidala. So there was a lot of sort of of hope, I think, that, like a new hope if you will <laughs> that there will be like you know more prominent female roles
1: are there gonna be i mean all right so the first trilogy had lando the second trilogy had whoever samuel L. jackson played mace windu and then in this new trilogy are there gonna be like two black people
0: <laughs> progress yeah i there's mean, at least
1: I... one because i was looking at the list and i remember there was at least one black guy on there <laughs>
0: Well, I'm assuming Billy D will be back, even though they haven't. Oh, I, they haven't officially announced him, but I think because Lando, I'm, this is my guess. Like Lando will probably be a smaller role because you already have so many other characters to deal with. But, like I don't think there's going to be like you know too much for Lando to necessarily do. Um, but I, I so I think like I'm guessing he's in there. They're not going to like forget about Lando. I'm guessing he's in there probably in like a smallish role more akin to a cameo and you know so it's like why necessarily announce that now yeah he'll be a great surprise when the movie comes out if
1: you see it the first day
0: yeah sitting in the theater like and and if this news is kept under wraps like we could get closer and they say like you know oh yeah Billy D is in the movie to try to get more people interested or whatever but
1: we we took pictures of billy d like walking yeah. out of the studio yeah. clearly he's doing this
0: but i mean like i think that like if they could keep it under wraps like he would like sitting in the theater on opening night the every everyone would just go bat shit when he appears and because it would just be like
1: oh yeah lando <laughs> motherfucking calruzzi in his back it's weird like i'm not a Star Wars person like I'm not really that invested in it but still for some reason I'm like I want to be there opening night
0: Oh yeah no <laughs> I I I was at um all 3 of the of the prequels opening night and it's just electric I mean I blacked out during episode 2 when Yoda <laughs> took out his lightsaber because just the energy in the theater was just overwhelming like people were standing up and like And i heard that was a horrible movie too oh it's awful (laughs) but i mean when you're seeing it for the first time and after like there's so much sort of as a star wars fan oh you're always thinking of yoda and like growing up and you're like yoda's a jedi i wonder if he ever had like a lightsaber like other jedi and then to actually like see it and ultimately, I don't think they they should have gone the route of, of him having a lightsaber. But that's that's a, yeah, and a whole other conversation. But I mean, like when he did take it out, it was like this moment of like it's happening. Like all the, of the, those like childhood fantasies of like when you're playing with action figures and you put a lightsaber in Yoda's hand. It's like it's it's real. It's suddenly real. And when you have an entire theater of people all experiencing it for the first time, and the, they were just going crazy like just standing up just cheering and i mean the same goes for when like oh man the the episode one the end there's nothing like watching that in the theater for the first time it was just unreal because for years you just have these three movies and you watch them over and over again and just like can't imagine that there's that there's more you know it's just like it felt like it was just solidified and then suddenly when you're sitting in the theater and like the fanfare starts you know the 20th century fox fanfare and you're just like oh my god <laughs> like this is this is unreal like i was shaking and like then the words come up you know a long time ago in a galaxy far far away and there's this sort of like collective gasp and silence and then the title comes in and it's loud and the theme the, the, mu- the theme song is there Everyone is just like,
2: yeah, Star Wars is back.
0: And then the scroll starts to happen. It says episode one. And it's just like, I can't believe that this is happening right now. (laughs) This is like surreal. So, I mean, yeah, I expect a similar kind of moment for episode seven. Because, I mean, after I went into episode three thinking like, well, this is it. This is the last one. <laughs> never have this experience ever again. Because at the time, George Lucas was saying like, you know, oh, there's never going to be any more Star Wars movies. I, I, I have my lawyers, they tied it up so much that like when I when I die, no yeah, one will be able to make Star Wars films. Like he was like basically saying like, when he died, he wanted to make sure that nobody could do it and that nobody can make a Star Wars movie. Ultimately, I think it's good that we are going to get more. Because it keeps it, it keeps it alive and keeps it relevant.
1: Do you know what changed his mind? Was it just like Disney offered so A much money? A billion dollars, maybe. I don't know.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure.
1: But what can he buy now that he couldn't buy before? <laughs> there has to be some other reason. I don't know. I can't. Say. I mean, like, I'm not gonna say like George Lucas would never just do something for money, but it just seems like there must have been some other yeah thing involved.
0: I'm not sure. But really, the the thing I wanted to talk about, getting back to the the cast of episode of seven,
1: Warwick Davis, not yet.
0: I'm sure he'll be. I'm sure he'll be there in a oh. in a cameo. <laughs> he cameoed in the in episode one. So, oh.
1: as um, what's his face? Wicket. Yeah.
0: No, that as Wicket. Oh, he was himself. He was. You could actually. He wasn't wearing like a costume or anything. Well, he was wearing a costume. Warwick <laughs> Davis. <laughs>
1: As naked Warwick Davis. He just, <laughs> yeah. he's like, I fell into this teleportation machine. I've ended up in this other galaxy, this other time. See, I'm that's an what, actor. That's what episode seven is all about. <laughs> is
0: Warwick Davis traveling to that galaxy far, far away. And he has to find his way home. It's kind of like Howard the Duck, only <laughs> only instead of the duck being on Earth, it's like Warwick Davis is, is on Tatooine. But anyway, um, yeah, my whole thing with this question of like you know, oh my gosh, like there's only one new actress is that like really, when you look at it when you break when you break this cast announcement down, like' cause people are saying like it's just a huge list of dudes, like where are all the women, but it's like when you really break it down like there there's only aside from like the original cast returning, there's the three main ones, then there's you know Anthony Daniels peter mayhew and kenny baker who are all playing they're not like playing like
1: humans men really yeah. you know
0: two of them are robots and you know one of them's a wookiee and you could say that T 3 po is
1: male but and since there's no um expanded universe anymore chewbacca doesn't even have a family anymore so maybe he's not <laughs> even a male maybe he's just
0: uh-huh. Maybe there's some secret that we haven't <laughs> known about Han and Chewie all along. <laughs> um, no, so I mean, like, there's six out of that huge list of actors that they announced that are kind of just like, they don't really count, you know, mm-hmm. to adding new blood. Then you've got Andy Circus and Max Monsaito, who, you know, I mean, we don't know who they're playing or wh- how big of a role they really have. And then with the other cast, I think it was like, I think it was five younger actors. Four of them were, were men. One of them was a woman. So really, I think it's, it, it's down to that five that kind of are the, the new characters and are probably like our protagonists. But we don't know who they're playing. Yeah. For all we know, like this, <clears throat> this woman, uh, Daisy, I forget her last name. Her name's Daisy probably know she, she she could be the main character you know she could be luke skywalker's daughter and that's not saying like you know oh well if you have like a main character as the, the woman as main character then you don't need any more women kind of like cutthroat island syndrome or something but
1: oh god what would that actually be cutthroat i'm sorry sir your diagnosis your has come in <laughs> cutthroat island, cutthroat syndrome. island syndrome.
2: no <laughs>
0: But I mean, like the, out of that, like those five young actors, like we don't know how big their roles are. We don't know who they're playing, or we don't know anything. That's like for everyone to sort of like jump up and down and scream about it right now is just kind of like it just feels very premature to me. And then they're already saying that like they still haven't cast all of the all of the characters, and that there is like one female role that still needs to be filled and that's just in the main cast. Like I I don't know. I think it's a little I think it's premature. Well,
1: people had to be upset about something because that's how people are. So what would you prefer them to be upset about?
0: Um No Warwick Davis.
1: <laughs> no James Earl Jones.
0: Yeah, No Frank Oz. I don't know. It's uh It seems like a silly kind of thing to argue about now. When we don't know anything about the story, or the characters, or anything. (laughs) It's just a list of names right now. So, I don't know. Hold judgment until you actually see the damn thing. They haven't even shot it yet. (laughs) Cool your jets, people.
1: It's coming out December 14th, 2015. Is that
0: the... Yeah, something like that.
1: I don't think I do want to see it opening night. I think I want to go on the the following Monday afternoon. Why? Because, I mean, I'll try and avoid you and Facebook and other people I know who probably went opening night. So I don't know too much. And then, like, I'll go on a Monday afternoon and I'll, there'll probably still, even on a Monday afternoon, there'll probably still be a lot of people in the theater. Yeah. Um, and I'll try to get, like, a good seat. Because I can't imagine, like, I don't want to... Like, how many hours before the movie starts could you see yourself waiting in line?
0: (laughs) Did I ever tell you my story about waiting in line for tickets for episode one? No. Eight hours.
1: Yeah, I don't want to do that. Well, I mean, you could buy them online, though, right? Well, not episode one, because that was way back when.
0: That was 1999.
1: But now you could buy the tickets online, but there's no assigned seats. Yeah. So you'd have to, like...
0: I would... I mean, I would I would wait, you know, personally, like, I'd wait a couple hours. I don't really care. But usually, like, when I'm going to, like, a movie or something like that, I'm with people and they don't really want to wait around.
1: Yeah, I think Avatar was, like, 45 minutes in line or something. Yeah, I mean... And that that was, like, kind of pushing it for me. I don't know.
0: But for Star Wars, like, I, you know, I want, I want to make sure that I'm there for the first available show
1: now I'm assuming this will be IMAX and 3d
0: yeah the 3d thing like I'm not sure I'm I can only assume that they're gonna do a 3d version of the movie so
1: you'd be going to cross gates,
0: probably assuming yeah.
1: that you're still in this area in December 2015 <laughs> yeah um so if you go into cross gates, what seat do you want to sit in because you should start thinking about this now so that when you walk in you know right where to run
0: I, you know, somewhere in the middle. You
1: should befriend ushers who work there.
0: Yeah. get on, get, And they'll, like... Build a relationship. Over the, <laughs> the, the long con is what I'm going for here. <laughs> yeah. I gotta get all Palpatine and get my chess
1: pieces on the board. And then they find out. They're like, you were just using me for the seats. And you're like, that's how it started, but I've come to care for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're only saying that because
0: there's a sequel. <laughs>
1: I'll go to Bowtie for the sequel. I'm sorry. I don't care about Star Wars. I care
0: about you. Uh,
1: Let's write that movie and have have it come out before that. We can do that, actually. We've got so much time. Yeah. Let's write an episode of a sitcom.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, like, I'm starting to get hyped. for for Star Wars Um, yeah I mean it's like it's a long ways away it's like a year and a half away but
1: we'll see there's no um, title for it aside from episode
0: yeah there's nothing Um, and I'm I'm glad like I'm glad that J.J. Abrams is helming it well I'm glad that he's helming it because of his directing ability and like I know he can make a really great kick-ass Star Wars movie but he's his like secrecy about his movies is somewhat like legendary like you know people are always like wondering more about his movies and wondering like why isn't he saying anything and he's like well because it's better to have like not reveal everything for the movie
1: I wish all filmmakers could be like that
0: and it's not that he doesn't reveal things about it but like he at least keeps things close to his chest like when it's so early on you know like right now like there's no need especially for star wars like there's no need to tell us anything because people like there's people are gonna go like it's gonna be a big movie regardless of what they do like
1: the trailer for the film could just be a little hint of the music the title and then the release date yeah and you'll sell out like i don't know
0: Man, oh man. If you go back and rewatch like the original like teaser trailer to like episode 1 or like any of the prequels really. Those are those first teaser trailers. They get me pumped up. Again, I'm like, yeah, I want to watch episode 2. Oh, wait, no. Never mind. I don't want to watch episode 2.
1: <laughs> one of the films that I watched last week like before the last time we recorded was uh King's Row. Um which is also an Oscar nominee, 1942. And it had uh, Ronald Reagan in it. And it was, it was actually a very good movie. The music for it was by, I uh, was it? Eric Wolfgang Korngold. I think is his name. He also did The Adventures of Robin Hood and some other films in that era. And the score was so clearly ripped off for Star Wars. Really? Like I'm sitting there watching it and I'm like, wait, why is this? I know this music. What's going on? And it's like, You'd have, like, I can't, like, actually do the... You'd have to actually watch it or, like, if... Or look up the soundtrack to the movie King's Row online and listen to it. And, like, it's very, like...
2: I
0: de- yeah, I definitely... Will. I went it's online
1: afterwards and so many people reviewing it were, like, it's weird to watch this from now. Like, in the 40s, we would have just been, like, oh, there's really good music. Mm-hmm. But, like, watching it, like, post-70s, it's, like, what the hell? I don't
0: know. Yeah, I mean, the music in 1977... 1977- that kind of, like, classic, traditional, sort of, big Hollywood score wasn't really in vogue.
1: Yeah, and it was really harkening back to, like, the Korngold and yeah. Max Steiner-type music.
0: And, I mean, the whole movie was harkening back to that era of just, like, adventure, action-adventure-type films. Yeah. And...
1: Oh, this is a small-town drama, ah, <laughs> so okay, it's weird, yeah. like...
0: Oh, that is weird.
1: It's one of those, like... Oh everything looks all nice and sweet in suburbia But if you peel back You'll see all the darkness underneath Which Mm. I feel like There's so many movies out there that do that And every time somebody's like Oh this one's finally revealing the truth And it's like it's been revealed Everybody knows
0: (laughs) But yeah Alright so we're kicking off uh, The cinema of Japan month With An early Japanese film not not too early by you know the standards of the the total history of of cinema in, in Japan because they were actually from my understanding is Japan had a uh, a pretty early history with with filmmaking and they were one of the one of the earlier countries to start making films
1: when like edison in america and the lumiere brothers in france like developed their cameras they would send people like all over the world like exhibiting them like look at this new invention we've got and like showing mm-hmm. the short films that they had made and stuff and both companies ended up selling uh, sending people to japan and for years they would exhibit those like early films and then eventually start building off it on their own and make their own films so that's the 1890s yeah so, that, yeah.
0: so they, they've got a history dating back to to then i don't really know much about when when you go into like history like film history classes or whatever mm. they never really touch on like japan at all during this whole era even through like the silent era
1: yeah i remember film th- history hearing a little bit about the Benshi. Which we'll talk about in a minute. But other than that, no yeah, I mean, actually, spe- actual specific films.
0: Yeah, when you when when you usually hear about film history, you hear about like American films, French films, German films, um, in that early period, um, because those seem to be the West. Yeah, the Western films, but particularly those three countries. It seems to be that those were the more influential ones overall. And the thing about J- Japan and, and Japanese culture in general is that, like, for for a long time, they were just very closed off from the rest of the world. A lot of a lot of Asia was. <laughs> and I'm not a history major, so like I could be just saying false things right now, but it's my understanding that like they were. I mean, they were they're an island, you know, and culturally, I think they were an island as well. Uh, Japan was an
1: (laughs) island. At first, uh, the oldest evidence of it being inhabited by man is from 30,000 BC. If you're a fundamentalist Christian, I mean 4,000 BC, because that's when the world began. But if you're a scientist, 30,000 BC. Um, But there's no history or anything or knowledge of what went on there until like... Around, like, the beginning of... Or, like, the the culture that we know as Japan, I guess, became established in, like, early AD. Hmm. Like, it's, like, a big mystery. Like, what was going on in Japan? Based on the two articles that I've read. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um. We're, we may not be the best people to uh, <laughs> go that far into Japanese history. But, yeah, so, I mean, I, relating it back to film, I mean, like, I was just always not really... I never really thought about, like, this whole era of film from like the beginning through like the 40s hmm. it just wasn't something that i really was and exposed to at all
1: as americans when you're watching older films especially in the 40s and leading up to it all you know about japan is that it's evil
0: yeah right <laughs>
1: <laughs> the yellow menace
0: um and that's what i'm wondering like um do you know were japanese films exhibited in america often or were foreign films at all Like in general Like exhibited in America Well
1: foreign films were Especially in the silent era Because you didn't have The language barrier You didn't have to worry About dubbing mm. And so all you needed to do Was translate Sub um, The intertitles Yeah Which I, I should I just want to throw out Right now that I started watching This week's film um, On YouTube Where it's available And They did not translate <laughs> There's no There's no subtitles For the intertitles Really? And at first I was like, well, I'm sure it'll be visual enough where I can just like get it. But after like the first five minutes, there were like several like obvious pieces of dialogue I was missing. I was like, all right, I got a Hulu Plus and I like got my sister's password because she has an account. And I just used that to watch it.
0: Yeah, that's probably the better way to go. <laughs> but because and then <laughs> after watching, you're like, you realize how yeah, it would have been bad. To- I would
1: have had no idea what was going on. Yeah. But there I mean, definitely German films were very popular in America. Even, like, you'd think after World War One we wouldn't really want anything right. to do. But, like, I mean, the 20s in Germany, that's that was kind of where it was at mm-hmm. with cinema. Um, like, all the expressionists, and you have, like, Fritz Lang and Murnau are starting out, and you have all their early films. Um, but then, you know, when sound came along, it sort of put an end to that to a degree. Mm. We would still get some of them, but until we really... Got how to do like professionally done like subtitles and or mm-hmm. have people dub or them. Dubbing, yeah. It was pretty much lot. There would be like, yeah, without that sort of, of infrastructure,
0: immigrants. like you, it's hard to kind of yeah. do that.
1: And I'm sure there were small theaters that would show them because I mean, like you think of things like Yiddish cinema, which basically it's like okay, if there's a large city with a Jewish population there might be a Yiddish cinema where they show films that are in Yiddish, but Mm -hmm. they're not going to play anywhere else because nobody else knows what the hell anybody's talking about. And they're, they're not even made for wide release. They're made for these specific communities. So I'm assuming, you know, like all like the Japanese immigrants living in California and stuff like that. There, there must've been like some theater that was showing them. I would assume
0: that makes a lot of sense,
1: but I don't, nobody was really, uh, even, I mean the, the, the director of the film we're doing today Ozu he none of his films ever even showed at like the Cannes Film Festival or Venice or anything like that
0: not even later on like
1: hmm. I was actually I watched another Ozu film sort of like the prep for this uh, his last film from 1962 An Autumn Afternoon And one of the special features on it is an excerpt from a French television show where two critics are sort of talking about his career and they're remarking about like how, oh, it's great that finally in France, like France, you know, like where everyone loves film and they're always like pushing like cinephilia, basically. Um, And like, it's like, oh, we're finally showing Ozu's films in theaters. And it's like 15 years after his death.
0: Yeah. So uh, my, yeah, my impression, I guess is sort of that like films coming out of japan were not widely distributed internationally and they didn't really start to have a real sort of impact or influence on american or western filmmakers until maybe like the 50s kurosawa when when kurosawa's films became really
1: had a big influence internationally well known western westerns mm-hmm.
0: yeah exactly so, yeah, the film we watched um, to sort of start this whole thing off was from 1932, uh, a silent film by the name of I Was Born, But...
1: which is such a weird title. And, I I mean, Ozu also had a film called, like, I Flunked, But... So, I'm wondering, like, maybe that was just a regular...
0: I'm, I'm <laughs> my guess is that it's something to do with the translation. Yeah. Because... the the Japanese language sometimes they have certain you know there are just certain phrases and certain words and stuff that like well in English it kind of means this so my my guess is that it's kind of just like the closest sort of interpretation and it probably sounds more natural in to a Japanese person in the native language but Donkey Kong (laughs) well Donkey Kong was somewhat of a misunderstanding of what
1: what was it supposed to be
0: (laughs) well he was a gorilla and so kong kong that's where kong comes from because it's like oh that's king kong kong means like gorilla and uh miyamoto the game developer of of the original donkey kong wanted to basically come up with a a name that sort of meant like stupid monkey and so
1: (laughs) jackass 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 monkey
0: you know, he, he, so he sort of saw the English word donkey and thought that it meant, like, you know, stupid or dumb. And, you know, it kind of means that with the jackass, uh, but, like, it's not really... We don't really think of it like, you know... If someone calls someone a donkey, it's not really like, oh, he's... We know what that means, necessarily. But, you know, it works, Donkey
1: Kong. But, yeah, I was born, but... Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the first uh sound japanese film was 31 and this is a silent film in 32 and ozu um kept making silent films until 36 even though by then pretty much everybody else had moved on mm-hmm. but he didn't really want to he was like no i i figured out how to do this i want to keep doing this like we're done it's, and, like, Charlie Chaplin did that right. in America, you know, and everybody else is like, okay, well, end of Silent Era, and he's like, well, I got a few more, so he did City Lights in Modern Times, and,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's weird, like, to think, like, one of the things you think, like, oh, well, you know, Japanese culture is very different from Western culture, especially if you're not exposed to any of it, like, right. you might be in the 30s or something, so it would make sense that these films might not translate from culture to culture, but this film... It's it could be a Hollywood film if it just had, like, different actors in a different setting. Like, it's... Or at least that's how that's how I saw it. I mean, there are certain... Definitely certain aspects that are specific to Japan, but as far as... Yeah. It's like a breezy... It's like a Little Rascals thing. It is, but like, like...
0: It does have that sort of Little Rascals Yeah, it's
1: like all these kids thing. get into mischief and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, although, Little Rascals might not constantly tug at their groin. <laughs> yeah, this is true. <laughs> or just, like, pee on the side of a fence or anything like that. Just...
0: Or ashamed of their father for yeah. working for somebody else <laughs> that whole idea I, I feel like to maybe someone in Japan they understand a little more of like the the shame that one might feel for like realizing that your father isn't a socially important person but I mean maybe in the 30s like people in America might have got that but like
1: Although, I, and, and I feel a lot of people in the 30s might have been thinking that because, you know, the 30s, you got the Great Depression, we've got, like, all these, like, poor people who didn't used to be poor. Yeah, that's true. And, like, these kids are looking at their parents, like, why Why, don't why you have can't money? you provide for us? <laughs> yeah. What the hell's the matter with that? That is true.
0: Um, but in this day and age, like, it's, I feel like it's harder for, we don't have that sort of tradition of, like, you know, you have brought great shame upon your family. Yeah. Which seems to be very prevalent in Japanese culture.
1: I feel like in America it's more like with each generation you're expected to do better than the previous one instead of just like you have to stay great (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's like well no you just keep getting better which I mean that doesn't necessarily work out all the time (laughs) but that's sort of like the mindset we get like oh you you know like your parents work hard so you can be better than they are and then you work hard so your kids can be better than you were and yeah
0: and one day you can grow up to be president and yeah you know and that's kind of like the the hollywood lie i guess that were that were given that like like when you're when you're young and you watch movies or tv shows about like kids in high school and you look at them like oh high school is going to be cool or like i can't <laughs> wait to get to high school and then it's like it's completely different than what yeah. you think it is and you're always like you know i want to be an adult because you can do all these cool things but like adulthood is not the way that it is in movies and like romance does not happen the way that it does in movies and like all that kind of stuff
1: another notable thing about the year 1932 in uh, the Japanese film industry is Ozu was not the only person in Japan who like was hesitant at first to go to sound although he waited longer than most others Um, they had a rich tradition in Japanese cinema of these people called benshi which, with silent films, at first, you know, it was like, oh, well, you know, there there might be, like, inner titles, and not everybody might be literate. So they would have people standing next to the screen. And they would be not only reading out the inner titles, but also sort of, like, making up dialogue and speaking along with hmm. the people who are moving their lips on screen. And they were storytellers. And in, like the three decades between like the introduction of cinema to Japan and the coming of sound, like these people had built up like cult followings. You'd go to a movie, not because of the movie that was playing because, Oh, that Ben, going to be doing it. I love that guy. And you'd go and watch him and hear him tell the story. And, you know, I mean, the jazz singer was 1927. That's the the first film with like sync, the first feature length film with synchronized dialogue. And then by 29, pretty much all American films, by the end of 29, pretty much all American films that were in production right, were sound. And that was spreading. And then, you know, in 1931, they'd made the first sound film in Japan. And in 32, they're like, well, you know, like, let's keep going with this. Let's do sound. And so the Benchy actually went on strike, hmm. which... It's weird to think about that, because it's like, well, if nobody wants you to do that anymore, yeah. I'm not sure why you're striking. Well, we're because... going to stop. <laughs> but, I mean, it would be like a true strike. Like, they would stand outside theaters and keep right. going in and stuff. Not like these, like, weird strikes today where it's just, like, it's just for show. You're just yeah. standing there or whatever. And, you know, the strike failed, obviously. And the... actually, when the strike failed, um, Akira Kurosawa's brother, who was a benshi at the time, he hmm. killed himself. Wow. In 1932, when the strike failed.
0: Holy cow. Yeah. I I did not know that.
1: I learned that earlier today.
0: (laughs) That is crazy. Yeah. I guess the whole Kurosawa family took film very, very seriously.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, if you're, I mean, film, like, I mean, when film started out, you know, it wasn't, like, anything that was respected by society or anything. It was, like... You know, like, oh, you're in film, whatever. But, like, benshi sort of, like, lent it this air of, like, oh, this is, like, our Japanese culture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it, like, combined it with theater. You had yeah, a live which, performance going on. Yeah,
0: and there. they had, like, a lot of early Japanese films were very much... Kabuki. Kabuki theater. Kabuki-style theater right. performances and things like that. And recordings of those those plays. So it makes sense that, like, they the two sort of were just intertwined and it's but I've never heard of that before like a silent film where they're just live people acting out the dialogue yeah. like that
1: and they still today they have like you know there's certain theaters unfortunately none really around here but like I've been to a couple downstate where they'll show a silent film and they'll have like a pianist a live, or an organist like accompanying yeah. it and um There's still, like, silent, like, repertory theaters in Japan where you can go and there's, like, a benshi kind of sort of, like, carrying on the tradition.
2: Hmm.
0: That's, I mean, that's really, really cool. So, yeah, this was my first uh, Ozu film that I've ever seen.
1: If I'd watched it last week, it would have been my second, but it was my third. (laughs) And the two that I watched, well, Tokyo Story, that's one that you hear about. It often makes lists of, like, greatest films ever made and stuff. And I watched it years ago and it's amazing and heartbreaking. And what's weird about it, you don't like when you're watching it, you're like, I'm watching a movie. And then when it ends and you start thinking about it, that's when it starts to like really move you. Mm -hmm. And I watched his final film from 1962 An autumn afternoon, just a few days ago. And that was sort of the same thing. Like I was watching it and I was like, this is kind of like, nothing's happening Mm -hmm. (laughs) and. And then it's over, and I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> and and that's sort of like... When people would talk about like the Ozu style, That's it was this very... The camera never moves, and it's always roughly three feet off the ground looking up at things. And there's very like... Even though all the shots are static, there's a lot of cuts. There's very short mm-hmm. shots. And between each scene... There's these interesting transitions. They called them cloud shots, and often they would be just shots of clouds in between the scenes. But also sometimes just shots of the landscape, and they're not necessarily like establishing like the setting of the next scene. They're just a weird little break. Mm. Which um, when I was studying film at like film history at Purchase, we never actually watched any Ozu, but we would talk about him in relation to Jim Jarmusch and Gus Van Sant. Hmm. who they both have done that sort of cloud shot in between scenes and Jarmish definitely with his like very limited movement of the camera and he would just like set up a scene and like kind of turn the camera on and have the actors go and stuff like there's definitely an influence there to talk about but it's weird that we didn't actually watch any of his films and I was surprised watching this early silent Ozu film at how well he handles camera movement Cause that's not there later. I don't know when that's, Mm. and like maybe it was like him adjusting to sound. Maybe like it stopped as soon as he started doing sound films, but like there's some very cool like tracking shots where it's like parallel editing of like a train going by Mm -hmm. and people like walking by it or somebody going by on a bike. And there is one, there might be more, but there was one shot that I noticed that was of clouds in between scenes.
0: I'm trying to remember. I wasn't looking for
1: it. I'm one familiar with Ozu. It's one of those things where if you're not looking for it, you probably wouldn't even notice because it's just like, there's a shot of clouds. All right. Like, whatever. But like, if like you've heard about like, oh, the Ozu cloud shot. Mm-hmm. And then there's like, oh, there it is. <laughs> and he's still, he is already doing the thing of having the camera roughly three feet off the ground, which some people have said like, oh, that's because there's, I forget what it's called. I want to say like tatami, some sort of mat. That people would sit on in Japan, mm-hmm. and you see, like, whenever anybody's like eating, they right. sit They're on, kneeling this, on the, yeah, yeah, on the mat, and it's like, oh well, you know, that's roughly where your point of view would be. But Ozu always said no; it was just something convenient to do because if you're in a small location, it's just like, oh, let's put the camera down here because it's the easiest thing to do. But you don't know how true that is. Like John Ford would say that about things he would. Right. He would spend hours setting something up and be like, I don't know, I just turn the camera on. Yeah. <laughs> um. But, but for, for this film, it's, like, these little kids. But you're, yeah, that's what I was yeah. going to say. It's, like,
0: we're at their level. Yeah. Because we're, the whole movie is in this sort of kid's world.
1: And you're, like, looking up at the adults, but you're yeah. eye level with the children. And, like, I'm, I'm wondering if, like, this is the only silent film I've seen, so I haven't seen the ones before this, several of which are gone. He directed 56 films, I think, and 29 exist.
0: Wow. That's not a very good ratio. <laughs>
1: no. There's an actor in I Was Born But who was in 52 of the 56 films, but I don't know who he played. Hmm. He would have been like 20 something, I think. And he's the lead in this final film, but I know that he's not the father.
0: Is he the? Uh, is he the the kid who like beats up the bully for them?
1: Possibly. He would. It's in on IMDb next to his name it says uncredited Hmm. and I am not good with names especially when they are foreign names Yeah. so I'm like when I went to read the cast list later I was like who played who? I don't know I don't remember who these people are and some of them had different names like on IMDB there's a woman credited as Yoshi's wife which Mm -hmm. is that's the mother because the father is Yoshi but on IMDb, the father is not credited as Yoshi. He's credited as like, whatever his last name was or something. Which so it was odd to try and be like, oh, who was Yoshi? And I'm scrolling up and down, and there's no Yoshi. But anyway, yep, roughly three feet off the ground.
0: <laughs> so, um, what were your overall impressions of the movie?
1: I really liked it, and I was surprised it's such a, like a Western influence. But I guess he was a fan of like Hollywood genre cinema, and I guess like in his diaries that were released after he died, he wrote like entries about like going to the theater to see Scarface, and it happened one night, and how they mm. were like masterpieces and stuff. And wow, just coming from like his later films to it, it was really jarring, just because they're so still and so tranquil, and it's such a
0: yeah. That's that's my sort of impression. I mean, I haven't. This is the only one I've seen. Mm. But I looking at like the titles of like, you know
1: Late summer, early spring, yeah. autumn afternoon. <laughs> or
0: like weed, weeds floating on the water. Or like the, the ta- Story of Floating Weeds. The story of floating weeds. Yeah. Or like the um Good morning. the taste of green tea on rice. <laughs> you know, yeah, they feel very just like serene. Mm. Um and that's what I I mean I, that's what I really liked about about this movie. It's the, the sort of, like, thing that you find in a lot of, like, Japanese films and um, even in, like, anime and stuff is that, it like, just this sort of, like, idolization of the innocence of childhood and kind of just, like, this almost obsession with, like, what life was like when you were a kid and just, like, the... Yeah. the, the Wanting to just be in that in that world of just like everything is just so everything's in its place, everything's nice, the world is taken care of, and you just are everything just feels i don't know like happy <laughs> or like uh and maybe not all the time happy, but just like everything feels okay like the everything has order, and it's I feel like in a lot of Japanese stuff compared to more Western things, it seems like the children are often portrayed more as like, they just feel more grown up in a way or more mature mm-hmm. or like smarter or I'm not sure exactly, but they just feel like they have more like ric- they're given like richer characters than like a lot of uh, like American children in movies which children like children in movies in like america tend to be like oh well this is a kids movie because the the, and there is sort of characters are children
1: they want to keep the kids from doing things that are too realistic because things that kids do in real life are not always appropriate for kids which is ridiculous
0: (laughs) and but like and that's what i like about like you'll you'll see a lot of times like in, in japanese stuff like Oh, that, ki- that kid is just, like, peeing, <laughs> like, in the side of that house right now. Or just, like, he just, they're, they have this freeness about them. Mm. Yeah, and I just, I, I, I get it, I don't know, I just get sort of, like, a warm feeling, like, while I was watching the movie, just, like.
1: Whenever you watch children pee. You yeah, want- I get this
0: warm feeling, <laughs> and I. <laughs> no, just, like, this, um, this somewhat, this longing to just go back to that childhood, you know. Yeah when everything did feel like the world was just taken care of.
1: The only other, um, films I think I've seen involving Japanese children are son of Godzilla and Godzilla vs Megalon. <laughs> it is weird. Cause like the kid in Godzilla vs Megalon is like wearing the same outfit as the kids in this sort of like that, like the, the short shorts and the little hat, the little hat. Yeah. Yeah. Which I guess is just, that's what Japanese children wear. The mm-hmm. Short shorts and a hat. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What do you think about the, um, like, there are just, like, certain, like, little cultural things that sometimes, like, the motivations of certain characters aren't as clear to me anyway, because uh, because I think it's just, like, this cultural sort of thing. Like, the, the whole bit about, like, the Sparrows' eggs and, like, they're, you know, the kids are... I thought it was gross. ...passing them around in school and, like... You know, it's sort of like like, their currency almost, and they're like cracking them open and just slurping them down. It
1: reminded me of like in elementary school, people like chewing sesame seeds on the or sunflower seeds on Mm -hmm. the on the bus. I don't know because they they would always be gross about it, and yeah, like you'd you'd go to there'd be like all over the the floor on the uh, school bus. you know, it's funny that you bring
0: that up because like I was kind of the same way. Like I didn't want I didn't eat sunflower seeds until much later because it just always kind of like.
1: I've never eaten them. Cause like, do you, can you eat the whole thing or do you have to spit them out at some point? Like, cause that's, people would just be spitting them and it was gross.
0: I mean, I, I eat them all. I eat the okay. whole thing. You seem yeah. worried. Like, oh no, maybe I haven't been <laughs> supposed to eat these <laughs> yeah. all these years. Yeah. I'm going to grow a sunflower out of my mouth. But yeah. They, they'd, like <laughs> they'd mash them up in their mouth and then they'd be like, Bleh, and just kind of, yeah. they're just gross about it.
1: And like, Maybe it was just easier to get a hold of sparrows' eggs in Japan, and like kids have to do gross things, so that's their gross thing they do.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it, it seemed like there's this sort of like mythic quality about them because they think it's going to make give them
1: power or give them strength. Though. Yeah, give them yeah. strength and power. When it when they first showed it, I was thinking like, oh, it's like in Rocky when he's swallowing raw eggs mm-hmm. in the morning as like first protein, <laughs> but there probably wasn't any relation in that.
0: Would you ever pull an egg out of a bird's nest and just slurp it down like that?
1: Um, I mean, I wouldn't say never because, I mean, like, there's situate, like, if there's... If
0: you're lost in the woods and you're
1: starving. If I haven't eaten in, like, two days or three days or whatever and I don't <laughs> two know... Two days
0: or, well, maybe three days.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know how many days I'd have to like, go without eating before I'm, like, this thing that just came out of this other thing, I'm just going to...
0: But that's the thing—is like you don't know if it just came out. Like maybe the the baby's like almost ready to be born. Like you don't know when you crack that egg open if it's going to be just a yolk or if it's oh, going to be like more of a fully formed
1: bird. That's that's scary. Maybe I would just eat the nest. <laughs> <I don't, laughs> I'm fine with twigs. Don't do worry about. And that. random hair and bits and Ugh. pieces of things they found on the ground. Uh, would you? Like what, what? In a
0: desperate situation. Okay, but. Yeah. No, no, no. That um, was that was gross. That was, that was gross. Was yeah. there
1: any resolution with the dog? Because they gave the sprays out like to the dog, and the dog was sick. But I don't think the dog...
0: Yeah, it's weird, because I expected them to kind of let that to kind of become, like, a more of a thing, because they had eaten the egg. Right. And the, then the dog's hair started falling out, and I thought they were going to be like, Oh, no, like, we've got a do something to counteract it or i don't know but it was just kind of like oh the dog's dying and then that's that or maybe it was just supposed to be like a little like a joke almost but i don't know the dog yeah just like a throwaway joke like oh no one knows why they're like oh it must have been something he ate and we the audience would be like yeah we know what he ate but like those kids they they did it.
1: It's one of those like cultural differences where it's like a dog being sick and you don't know what's going to happen to it isn't necessarily funny to us. Yeah, it's hard to like, oh, this is a hilarious joke involving. But see, I'm a not sure if it dog. even was
0: supposed to be a joke.
1: But I mean, there are I don't know there are certain jokes in films that like have like in like films from other cultures that like have to do with like, haha, an animal something horrible happened to this animal and like, it's awkward. Cause like clearly in the context of the film, it's supposed to be funny. And then from our point of view, we're just like, Oh my God. Yeah. Like, um, what is and that? when I say our culture, I don't even necessarily mean like America. I mean like our, like white upstate New York culture, even cause mm-hmm. like something like, um, Crooklyn, a Spike Lee film, there's a scene where like a dog is crushed inside of a couch and it's clearly supposed to be this hilarious thing that happens. There's actually several films and TV shows with that are like predominantly like African American like casting crew that involve animal cruelty and it's supposed to be funny.
0: Yeah, whenever that kind of thing happens <laughs> like um the beginning of The Hangover 3. We had it at Amy's and I didn't watch the whole thing, but I watched the opening and it involved Zach Galifianakis like driving down the highway with a trailer in the back with a giraffe inside. So the giraffe's neck is like sticking out of this thing. So like he's driving down the highway with this, you know, giraffe poking out of Mm. the back. And, uh, there's like a kid like looking like, Oh, look at the giraffe. And uh he drives under an overpass and the giraffe's head gets ripped off and smashes into the into the car behind him with the kid inside. And it's supposed to be funny. <laughs> I'm just like that's awful.
1: <laughs> What's weird is in a cartoon I think I might find it amusing yeah but when it's live act, like cause like on Family Guy like so many animals die and horrible things happen to them and you just you laugh mm-hmm. but if like I don't know like the,
0: I I just don't I don't know I just don't find that it, it immediately just makes me like well that Zach that Galifianakis character is just he's an awful person <laughs> maybe that's the
1: point I isn't that know. one of the driving themes of that trilogy <laughs> isn't he the one who roofies them in the first one that starts all the trouble
0: yeah so I mean I guess he is an awful person but yeah I don't know I never really find that kind of humor funny
1: yeah and I've never seen all of the hangover only the first like 20 minutes or so
0: (laughs) but it's also weird because it's like I can watch you know sort of like horror comedies where people are getting ripped apart or people die in humorous ways and that that can be funny well
1: when it's people like you've met people who are jerks yeah. And you know that people are capable of being horrible. So it's like every time something horrible happens to a a, a person we in just, a work of fiction, it's yeah. like, well, they could have been a dick. We like, just
0: who, we just assume that they're not innocent.
1: Yeah. And, and but even, I mean, even, even if they are. Yeah, even if just they like, are. Well, really it's like, well, it's just a person. Yeah. And like, but with animals, it's like chances are if that animal's a jerk, it's because some human made it a jerk.
0: And uh Yeah, you, you, we never blame the animals. that's why like and it doesn't matter what it is like you can sit through a movie where like 20 people get killed but as soon as they kill the dog you're like fuck that guy poor cujo yeah poor cujo (laughs) why did he have to shoot jaws i don't understand he was just a shark he didn't know any better
1: King Kong just wanted to love that girl.
0: <laughs> well, King Kong is like, I mean, he's yeah. specifically a sympathetic character.
1: Well, so is Cujo, to a degree. I mean, he was, was it bat? He got into a bat cave, right?
0: He got hyped up on bat guano? Rabbit? Rabies?
1: Yeah, he got
0: bitten by bats. Oh a long time i i haven't seen cujo
1: since and it's a very I don't like i think i've seen the i think it's like thing. a pre-credit or no i think it is the credit sequence so it's not even like <laughs> something like really focused on it's just like this is why he's crazy okay <laughs> yeah even i'm trying to think oh the scene um all right so when they're showing the movies yeah the, sort of the like home, the home movies. the amateur movie is that like yeah. the fathers and, and it shows them doing like calisthenics on uh on the roof like they're sort of like exercising and he's sort of like goofily exercising yeah that was actually a th- once Japan started like the whole like sort of urbanization thing like the rest of the world and they were building these like tall buildings and stuff mm-hmm. a lot of businesses would have spaces on the tops of the buildings for the workers to exercise mm-hmm. and they would have like calisthenics and some of them would have these little like um uh, shooting ranges like golfing, shooting ranges, not
2: okay.
0: That makes more sense,
1: not like target practice. Um, <laughs> so, that was just another cultural thing I was noticing. But I really, that whole sequence, yeah, is... th- well,
0: they well, that still happens today
1: in America, no,
0: in Japan. Oh, okay, yeah, um, where workers will construction workers will go in in the morning, and before they start work, they'll spend like an hour, like all collectively, like working out and like doing like aerobics and stuff.
1: I knew about like businessmen, I didn't know that construction workers did that. Maybe that's why other countries are more fit than us.
0: Yeah, I mean and like and it seems like Japanese culture in general just like they take laziness kind of very seriously. In that like and you know, they they do things in a particular way. They have, like they pride like patience and like you know,
1: and reflection. Yeah. There's a scene in Ozu's last film, An Autumn Afternoon, where um, the main character is in a bar and he meets this guy who uh, served under him in World War Two, and they're sort of like thinking back on World War Two, and the the other guy is like, "Oh yeah, if we if we had won." you know, we, instead of us, like, watching baseball and listening to this music, we would be in New York City right now, and they would be, like, you know, like, doing these different, I forget what he mentioned, some sort of, like, food they were eating and things, like, you know, like Japanese culture would have taken over America, sort of. And um, the main character, like, as the conversation goes on, he actually says a line where it's like, maybe it's for the best that we lost. <laughs> and I can't imagine an American ever being, like, like it, you know... Like we like we lost like World War II, like mm-hmm. everyone just being like maybe it's for the best. Yeah. Like just being able to like separate any sort of like national pride with just like some sort of like logical exploration of the actual issues and mm-hmm. things. But like in I I really don't know about Japanese culture in general, but the characters in that film are like, well, you know, like the militarists were like out of hand and like we it was the horrible living like that. And like, you have to like join the military and you have to go to war and you have to kill all these people. And it's like, let's just live life. Mm-hmm. And like after world war two, like they got rid of their military and they started focusing on other things, which is, uh, you'd think other countries would like learn a lesson from that. Like, Oh yeah. wow. I mean, look at, look at how Japan's doing right now. And yeah, they don't have a they, the military. Like they've, they've
0: grown. Like <laughs> it's insane for a country that was like the only country to be, attacked with nuclear bombs. Like, yeah. they like they were, like, destroyed, basically. But how long ago? It was 70 years ago, about?
1: It was ni- August 1945. So, uh, yeah, 69 years ago.
0: Yeah, I mean, for a country to rebound so quickly, and, like, they've surpassed so much of the world in, in different ways. It really is, I mean, it's impressive.
1: And they keep having these setbacks. There was just that thing, was it last year?
0: the fukushima um well there's the the typhoon, which led to which set off the this other stuff and like Fukushima a, meltdown and
1: and like we were just talking earlier about like how in the twenties there was the big earthquake and like just
0: yeah in nineteen twenty three there was this massive earthquake that um destroyed all large communities and hundreds of thousands of homes, thousands of people were were killed. In what sounds just insane, because apparently the more the most people were were killed due to fires that had erupted, because the the earthquake hit around lunchtime and everyone was like cooking food over fires, so there were all these fires lit, and it spread like crazy, and um, there were like high winds which created like fire tornadoes that like ripped through this this building that people had gone into like thousands of people went into this building to like basically get cover from all the shit that was going on outside. And this fire tornado tore through the place and incinerated everyone inside. And so, I mean, they were like rocked to the core by this earthquake and, uh, you know, uh, had to rebound from that. So, I mean, they, you know, they, they seem to be very good about putting things in perspective And, you know, you hear the story about um, during the Fukushima meltdown, about how, like, there were, you know, people had to go in and, like, into the actual nuclear plant where there was, like, radiation everywhere Mm -hmm. and, like, try to shut it down. And um, there was, like, a group of, like, elderly people who, like, volunteered to go in so that, like, the younger people didn't have to get the radiation poisoning. So they were like, you know, we we don't want the young generation to have to deal with that. Like we're we're old, and we can we should be the ones to bear the the weight of that. So they all went in and got radiation. Poisoning. I
1: can't see that happening in our culture. I like the whole idea of things like like a samurai being dishonored and falling on his sword Mm -hmm. or like a kamikaze pilot who's like going into a mission knowing they will die. And they even have the funeral before he gets in the plane. Like, so he can be there for it. Like I I can't imagine our culture just being like, so accepting of like just any of that.
2: Yeah.
0: And that's what I say. Like they, they, I feel like they have a a good sense of like putting things in into perspective and like doing things for the greater good. And, and like
1: what is the name of that that state of mind it comes up a lot when I was reading about Ozu but I don't remember what it was
2: I am I not, I'm not sure
1: it. there is a ja- there's a Japanese term for that but I wouldn't know how to pronounce it anyway so, mm. which is gonna be a difficulty this month when we're talking about some of these movies
2: yeah
0: <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs>
1: yeah. like uh, Ozu was I mean like he was a very like laid back person and like sort of like take it as it comes sort of guy which might have been like in his films that's great in his life it might have been detrimental he never married and as far as it's known he never even had any sort of like romantic involvement Hmm. with anyone like I guess at one point there was an actress he worked with frequently who he actually proposed marriage to but she turned him down but aside from that no one really knows of any anything he lived with his mother his entire life she died while he was filming his last film. And then a few months later he died. He died on his 60th birthday. Wow. He lived from December 12th, 1903 to December 12th, 1963. That's crazy. And like, that's, I mean, he also, in addition to like waiting several years before starting to make sound films, he waited until the late fifties to make color films. Mm. And he also was at the same, I don't know much about like, like how similar the studio system in Japan is to the American studio system, or even if it would be referred to as a studio system, but the, um, the three big ones are, there are the three, yeah, Toho, three big ones, yeah. uh, Shochiko and Nikatsu. And he was at Shochiko his whole life. He never, he, every film he made, he was just there because he it was like don't make waves just I mm-hmm. got this I'm just gonna keep doing this this is the way I do things I'll keep going
0: yeah I mean it's very like zen buddhist sort of like mentality of just being like finding contentment in your life
1: and like at the end of I was born but the father the father like is sort of like kids you shouldn't be upset about this this is just the way it is. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it sort, it sort of gets to him, too. And then, yeah. like, in that last bit where he sees his boss and he wants to, like, he always does, like, go over and, like, greet his boss and mm-hmm. say hi and kind of, like, suck up, suck up, to up him, if yeah. you will. He sort of, like, hesitates and he's like, but I don't want to do it in front of my kids. Now. Yeah, And then they're like, the kids it's are fine. Like,
0: you should go do it. Yeah. Man, I mean, the more, the more I think about the movie, like, the more I, I really did love it.
1: Were you ever a new kid? In any situation? I mean, I know you lived in the same town your whole life, but as far as, like...
0: I never... I was never, like, the new kid in any school. Yeah. Like, I, I went to the same elementary school. Me too. The whole... For the whole time. So, I mean, yeah, I can't imagine being, like, you know, entering in, like, that sort of new crowd and finding your way around.
1: There were some situations that this film kind of reminded me of, like, um my aunt Linda used to live down in Bedford Hills and she was a a babysitter and she would always have all these kids at her apartment. And when I would go and like stay with her and stuff, there'd just be all these kids around and they would have their group. And all of a sudden it's like, who this? Who's this Tim kid from upstate? What's Mm -hmm. this about? And like, and then you'd have to go through this sort of thing where it's like, clearly they don't like me Mm -hmm. and they're going to be picking on me, but then you just kind of like deal with it. And then all of a sudden you're part of the group. But in that situation, it's like oh, and now it's time to go back upstate. So whatever. Yeah. But it is very like I don't know. Just reminded me of that. Like like when these you know the two brothers show up and there's all these like new kids they have to deal with and um, they have their own group. Like you know they're gonna have to do these horrible like rites of initiation. Yeah. But eventually it'll just be like whatever.
0: And and their particular rite of initiation seemed to be this like funny little. <laughs> ritual they do where like they'd hold up their fingers and almost like, command the the mm. the person to lay down on their back
1: and then they would cross themselves and then
0: they'd cross themselves and like reach out their arm and almost like raise them back
1: up which that must be some western influence crossing yourself yeah um, i was
0: wondering about that
1: yeah and that's actually similar to something which i guess around here i never heard of it until i was working at bard there's something i forget what it was called something with like bird something you i don't know how to describe it so you describe what i'm doing right
0: now um he's (laughs) creating uh like a mask with your hands almost almost like holding your hands upside down on your face
1: yeah um but anyway i and Someone did that to me at Bard and I was like, okay, I don't, and they're like, it was actually one of the stretches we had to do at Bard because it stretches your wrist Mm. really good. And then somebody was saying like, yeah, what you're supposed to do when somebody does that to you is you have to like lay down like you're dead. And I was like, Mm. why? And they're like, I don't know. It's just like something people do. And I'm like, I don't think that's true. (laughs) And they're like, no, no, I've seen people do it and people do. And like, I, but I, it's not anything that ever touched my life outside of that, but I mentioned it to somebody else and they had heard of it, but I forget what it's called—like something bird. I don't know.
0: In America, we flip the bird. Ha! <laughs> then you're supposed to fuck off.
1: All right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like the the kids, whenever like they, early on in the film, when they're, sort of like dealing with the bully, and he's like, "Hey, come out here! I'm gonna give you a good one." You know, when when you go to school or whatever, and they'd sort of do this little like pose almost and like make like a like stick their tongue out and squint with one eye and like stand on one foot and like kind of yeah. make this sort of silly pose. That kind of thing is the, is the sort of thing that doesn't translate so well into our sort of culture the nuances of like the, the facial expressions and what they sort of what kind of real meaning they have. because Facial expressions seem to be very very important In the in the way that they uh, convey those kinds of emotions, like I you always see like them, like uh, they'll pull like one eye down, stick their tongue out, or I don't know.
1: And it's similar to what they see their father doing in the film later.
0: Yeah, sort of acting childish. Yeah, Yeah. and it's it's funny because like, and that's at the at the point in the movie where I start to realize the cultural discrepancy almost because they're watching the home movies and their father comes up and at first they're like hey it's it's our dad you know and then he starts making all these goofy faces and everyone's laughing and all even the kids are like hey your dad's really funny and to me like you know if we were growing up and like you were with like a group of like kids in school if you were in school and like your dad came in and did like a I don't know, funny sort of stand-up thing, and all the kids were like, hey, your dad's really what? funny. <laughs> I can't that but, okay. <laughs> but, it, but if your kids were like, you know, hey, your dad's really funny, you'd take that as like a compliment, you know? Yeah. You'd be like, yeah, he is, you know, because he's popular with the kids. But these kids, like, as soon as they start seeing their dad doing these funny faces, their expressions just like sort of grow, just like they grow stone-faced, and they kind of just look at each other like, oh, boy. And all the other kids are like, hey, your dad's really funny. And then they just get up and leave. And they're like... That... I didn't know our dad was like that. (laughs) Like, he's he's making himself look like a fool for his boss.
1: There's a scene a little before that where their father is... uh, He just got out of work and he's... So he's, like, changing out of his work clothes into his, like, robe. Mm -hmm. And... um, it's kind of weird because he's just, like, taking off his clothes while talking to his kids. With <laughs> like, well, and,
0: Especially, like, but. in the scene where, like, he realizes that one of his kids, like, lied about getting a, an excellent yeah. uh, grade on his assignment. So he knows his kid was is lying. And he's like, you know, I'm very ashamed of you. And he starts taking off his clothes and yeah. he's sort of giving <laughs> his like kids a stern talking to like i'm gonna show you one what who the real boss is around here he like takes his pants off and i'm like what's
1: going on and in the middle of that sequence like one of the sons nudges the other one and points to his socks right which i to us is like
0: i didn't know what he was talking about
1: and i think I'm not sure. I was very confused when I was watching it. I was like, are they laughing because he has hairy ankles? Like
0: Or like that his um, socks aren't pulled up? Or like, I think it what? might
1: have been because this is back when men wore garters to hold their socks up. We didn't uh-huh. have the elastic at the time. Uh, Cause now you know you, it'd be weird if a man was wearing garters. Um, <laughs> that would be. But you know, like you go back a few decades, and it's like, well, you're wearing dress socks. There's no elastic in them. You wear garters around your legs to hold your socks up, and it looks nice and professional. And he's got these socks that are like rolled down, so, not rolled down, but they're just kind of falling down. Mm. And I think they're like, oh, that's shameful. Our father doesn't wear garters. Like that, maybe that's what it was.
0: That would make sense. Yeah, like that he's. Yeah, that he's
1: kind of. And that's really, I think that might be the first moment that sort of. Well, the opening scene where they're stuck in the mud, and they need help, maybe, but nothing is really made of it. Yeah, yeah. But that's the first moment with the socks that really like draws its attention to like these kids are kind of like looking at their father as not perfect,
2: Mm which
1: is a rite of passage that everybody has to go through at some point when you realize like, oh, this guy's just a guy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, ultimately, they they accept him for who he is. And and I love how just like, you know, through the whole movie, there's like this, the bullies that are, you know, there's the kid who's like bullying them and mm-hmm. um, they're trying to fit into this group, but they're all kind of not, they seemingly not willing to let them kind of in. Yeah. But by the end, you really feel like, you know, that they've, they've made they're all, fr- they're all really good friends now. And I just love that whole notion of, like, encountering someone who, at first, it seems to be your adversary, but winds up being one of your closest friends. And that's something that I, I've seen a lot in Japanese films and television and stuff. Like in the anime Dragon Ball Z, for instance. It's a really, really long story starts with with goku being like a baby basically and it goes all the way to he's you know fully grown and has his own kids and stuff and um he winds up with this large group of like close friends and uh you know these other fighters and stuff almost like a team and every single one of those people was at first an adversary and just through, like, his, his goodness and his innocence, he's able to kind of, like, turn people who are initially, like, disillusioned in the world or very full of themselves or even just straight-out evil. Just by, you know, being himself, he's able to kind of turn those people into his closest friends and allies and turns them to, to being good. And... um yeah, I just I just like that sort of like the the, the Japanese sensibility of like of just pro, like uh idolizing innocence, kind of like what I was saying before. Mm-hmm. Like, really, it's a it's a trait to be admired, because I mean in America, like all of our heroes are broken, and I once was blind, but now I see the real world. But yeah.
1: It's weird when I first mentioned the film to you as one that I wanted us to watch, my description of it was these kids see a movie of their father kind of like goofing off and they're ashamed of him. I don't remember you
0: saying specifically the movie, bit. I just remember you saying like it's about these kids who are ashamed of their father.
1: When I watched the film, it was weird that it's like a 90 minute movie and that's like the last half hour of it. Yeah. And like, I'm sitting there, watching, I'm like, <laughs> like, what did I, like, I told him that. And it's not even like, I, I, that's all I really know going into it because mm. of like things I'd heard elsewhere about it. And then there's the hunger strike at the end, which I, there's a film that Ozu made in the late fifties called good morning, which some sources have referred to it as a remake of, I was born, but
2: yeah.
0: Yeah. I but, read a little bit about that.
1: But it, um, based on what I read about it, it, just seems to focus on like the kids are striking or the kids are going on some sort of strike so that their parents will buy them a TV. Yeah. Which, like, maybe it does have more to do with I Was Born Butt also, but like, I'm wondering if that's just like, oh, the kids go on strike, therefore it's a remake of I Was Born Butt.
0: Well, I mean, the way I saw it described was that it was a loose remake, but I can, I mean, I can see how it could be tied into it. Like if the family can't afford the TV, yeah. for instance, and the kids are like, why can't you just buy a TV? And it's like, well, you know, he need money to do that. And he's like, well, you don't have money. <laughs> like that kind of ties into the whole thing going on. In-
1: I'm really curious about that film though. Cause it is a later film. And it's like when he's in that later style of filmmaking that he had, where it's like the camera doesn't move. And it's just all the films are very calm, mm-hmm. and yet it still has children at the center of it. I'm just wondering mm-hmm. how that works together, because like,
0: because kids are not known for their calmness.
1: No, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I don't know. I'm curious enough to check it out. I real like after this past week, really like looking into Ozu more. Like I re- I just want to see everything now.
0: Yeah, I noticed on um, on Hulu Plus, there's a very large selection yeah. of this stuff.
1: Because there's been a lot of stuff that Criterion has put out by him, and they all seem to be on Hulu Plus, and also some other films. A lot
0: of other, like, uh, early Japanese stuff, Mm. Um, which I actually, before watching this, I was looking on Netflix to see if there was any other, like, kind of stuff that would be good to watch before this. Like, I was looking for, because I wanted to watch it in, like, sort of chronological order, so I'm like, I wonder if there are any films pre-1932, you know, Japanese films and I couldn't find anything. And then I went over to Hulu Plus and I saw, like, after I was done in the movie, it said, like, oh, you might also like this. And I was scrolling through it and I'm like, damn, they've got, like, tons of movies here.
1: Yeah. Like, I there's it's a whole... One of the things I like about doing this this month is, like, it's this whole new world of film to explore. It's, like, starting over. Yeah. I don't really yeah, know much I mean, going in. I've never seen a Mizuguchi film. I've never seen a Naruse film. And there are these, like... Kings of Japanese cinema. Mm-hmm. I, I've only seen one Kurosawa film, <laughs> and yeah. yeah.
0: Well, next week we're, um, I guess, straying away from the the masters of Japanese cinema. Kind of going for a little, still largely important in in the in the world of of Japanese culture and and film, the kaiju, the giant monster, which would come to dominate so much of their of their fiction just like the idea of a giant robot or a a giant monster or a giant robot battling the giant monster a dime a dozen when it comes to those kinds of stories but this is the the one to rule them all the king of the monsters gojira godzilla there is a new godzilla movie coming out in america and another American remake. they were giving it another go. Um, <laughs> thankfully, I say this
1: time it seems to be deadly serious. <laughs> like,
0: well, that's something that on the commercials we'll we'll see in the original Godzilla. Which have you seen the original Godzilla?
1: I've only seen the Americanized version of Americanized the original, ver- yeah, with which, added same, footage, same right with remember? Me. Yeah, uh, called Godzilla King of the Monsters. Yeah,
0: so I we've both seen that version. This time around, we're gonna watch the original Japanese version, Gojira. That movie is surprisingly serious. At least the the American version that that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's you know when you think of Godzilla, you often think about him battling other monsters like Mechagodzilla or like uh, King Ghidorah or King Kong. And with the little kids, like, you know, go Godzilla, yeah, do it! But the original Godzilla is much, much different. It's yeah. uh, it's, it's very serious and very dark and, like, you get, like, the whole, like, you feel the reality of it more, like,
1: this shit is happening, there's a giant fucking lizard tearing the town, like, the city of heart. The 90s American version was, like, it was a sort of a comic take on it. It right? was more comic, yeah. Right
0: so this this new uh, american version seems to kind of be more akin to the original godzilla
1: now is it a takeoff on like when you're watching the commercials you don't really know it's a godzilla movie until the end it's just like these soldiers like he's like calling his wife and be like honey i don't know something might happen to me i don't know oh and you are like oh no what is what's going on what sort of disaster and it is it like a comment on nine eleven? Is that what they're going for? Or like what are they what do you think they're commenting on? Like
0: I don't know. I haven't seen the movie. I've only seen one of the trailers.
1: I just imagine like Japanese people seeing it and being like, you know, the thing we were commenting on <laughs> was you guys committing genocide against us? Like you murdered so many innocent people, <laughs> like in just like two drops and uh well two days, two not two drops because there were several, mm-hmm. but anyway. And like compared to that, like anything America's gone through has been such a small ordeal. So I feel like there might be some bitterness if we're like I don't know.
0: Yeah, I don't mean I don't know. I'll, we'll have to see the. Uh, yeah, we'll have I haven't to see seen the, it. yet. Yeah. We'll I'm only going by the way one. it's
1: being advertised. But
0: yeah, it'll be. I, I'm I'm very interested to sort of compare and contrast the the new and the old. So hopefully, I mean, we said this when. The remake of carrie came out but hopefully this (laughs) month we'll be able to go and actually see the new godzilla and um and compare it to the original but next week we will be talking about the original godzilla the original original the original original which you can see on hulu plus if you have that um it's on there i would highly recommend it i mean i've i've seen the american version and i think it's a great film and um I'm sure the the Japanese version is just as as good. If not better, maybe. I'm not sure. We'll We'll find out. Yeah, so I'm excited to get into that. Godzilla opens up a whole other can of worms. but We'll dive right into that can of worms next time. So thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Talkin' Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we'll see you next time.